Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. This is a podcast where we do lists. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap. Everybody calls me Bebs. Uh, my name is Winnie Seibold. I write for Slash Film. Yay! And I thought maybe you'd say more, but that's fine. Uh, this is the this is the Iron List. This is a monthly podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where Whitney and I uh, each present a top ten list based on a topic chosen by our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. We give you a list of five options. And our patrons decide which ones we're going to do every single month. And this one uh, was a tall order. They they picked a doozy. <laughs> uh, and uh, and what did they pick, William? Well, they picked the most 1980s movies of the 1980s. Uh, we had previously done early on, uh, uh, one of our iron lists was the movies that defined the 1990s. Uh, and so we're kind of doing the same thing for the 80s. Um, the 80s was quite a decade. The 80s is a decade that we seem to be constantly revisiting in popular culture and unfortunately in other areas as well, like politics. <laughs> uh, so well, we know, we, we're, that, we're stuck uh, in its thrall. I'll, I'll say that the reason we keep on revisiting movies of the 1980s is because uh, guys our age, and they are guys, are Mostly, uh, yeah. kind, kind of running the show right now. They're, uh, you know, usually the ones who are, like, the loudest voices in terms of uh, online criticism and film discourse. They're also the ones running toy companies and tchotchke shops that are licensing very particular films for celebration. Uh, they're also they're making also, movies. And yeah, I was about to say, they're also the ones in on... charge of making the movies, so yeah. it's n if you're wondering why, why we keep on coming back to, you know, Ghostbusters... Or, you know, certain very particular film. A lot of the, the sort of key films came out uh, in 1984. But a lot of these movies that came out in like, sort of like the mid-80s were seen by the guys in charge when they were kids. So that's yeah. what they're just sort of regurgitating. Now, uh, the following list is not a list of the best films of the 1980s. We've actually done that before. Uh, yeah, uh, and that would be, that would be mostly... With maybe one or two exceptions, that would mostly be a very different list. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I don't think any of the films on this list are necessarily of the best films of 1984, with, like, with the exception of, I think, one I chose. Well, you said uh, 1984, but, but it's the 1980s in or excuse general. Excuse me, 1980s, that's what I meant. Yeah. Um, so the, these are not the best films of the 1980s. These are the ones that uh, defined some aspect of the era, and I have to stress this part, as we saw the era, uh, the 1980s are going to be a very different experience for people of different age groups, people uh, of different backgrounds, people mm -hmm. of different countries. This is just sort of how we saw uh, the 80s playing themselves out in popular media from how we consumed it. And indeed, when I look at my list of films, uh, which I approach very much the same way, Whitney and I do not discuss our lists together ahead of time. I have no idea what's on his list. Uh but we both kind of ended up following the same approach that at least a couple of the films on my list are films that I would not call good at all. Like, I don't think they're good movies, but mm. they typify an element of the 1980s that I remember very distinctly or that looking back 
feels particularly important. I think it's worth noting that whereas when we did this for the 1990s, we were both alive and had been around for a little while and were experiencing the entire run of the decade. Um, Mm. In the 80s, you were quite young and I wasn't born until 1982. So my experience of the 80s in person was that of a child for the most part. And I fully acknowledge that I do not have the depth of understanding that would come from someone who was at the very least a teenager at the time, someone who would actually like experiencing and paying more attention to the world around them, but certainly not one who as an adult would have fully appreciated a wider range of those elements. I've gone back mm-hmm. and I've watched a lot of those movies and I've know a lot about what happened in the 1980s and I've, you know, I've, it wasn't that far removed from it, but I think it's a different experience when you're, when you're a kid. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I yield that caveat. I had fully admit that like my list, as you said, these are through our own perspective. These are through our own lens. I'm looking here now, a lot of my lists, uh, of films on my list deal with issues that I, I tend to gravitate towards in my mind, uh, in terms of like feeling important now, stuff like class issues. Um, so, um, yeah, other than that, the only thing that we do uh, differently on the Iron List than most other shows that do lists is uh, ranking does not matter to us. We do not care. The ninth film we recommend is not like better or worse than the tenth film we recommend. We recommend all of these films, at the very least, as an example of this topic. Maybe we don't necessarily mm. recommend you see all of them, but if you're looking for films that to, like, to look back and go, oh, that's what the 80s were like. Yeah, that that's we all recommend these based on that topic, if only that topic. Yeah. Uh, and, and our number not, uh, yeah. and our number one it, pick is definitely our number one. That's the one rule. So that's that's well, the one that if we had to pick one film that is the eighties boom. Well, t- typically, but I don't think I have like a one most exemplar. In fact, uh, the way I constructed my list, every film I chose represented like a different facet of the 1980s. Mm. So I'm not sure if I even have a number one. These are just 10 films that I think are definitive of the decade. Well, I think here's what I would say. Here's, here's how I decided to pick my number one film, because I agree with you. Okay. It's not about because it's not about quality even. And because no one film encapsulates the entire decade. But. If I were working at a video store and someone came up to me and said, I need, like, I was sent out to get the most 1980s movie I could possibly get. Okay. And I can, we only have time to watch one film. What should I pick? And I picked the film that I honestly feel would be the absolute most 1980s movie I could give them. There are other films here that would, if it was rented out, it would be perfectly fine to put another film there. But uh-huh. this would be the thing I would gravitate. They'd be like, I know exactly the movie. So that's how I picked mine. How you pick yours, I'm I'm very curious to find out. <laughs> uh, on that note, is there anything else we need to discuss before we get started? Uh, no, no, I, I think that's it. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm very curious to hear what you picked. Why don't you give me your number 10? All right. Or um, not that it matters, but what's your first? What's your first one you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, my, my number. The, just the first film I'd like to talk about. Well, um, the 1980s, and this I'm going to start with one that I believe was on my best of the 80s list, just so we can mm. get sort of any overlap uh, out, out of the way, out of the bed. Um, the 1980s was a time of uh, laissez-faire capitalism. Ronald Reagan was in office. R- Ronald Reagan is responsible for a lot of what we're about to talk about on this list. Uh, <laughs> 
And uh, Ronald Reagan sort of ushered in this uh, era of just completely unregulated, uh, like, stock trading and commodities trading and gave rise to this whole class of uh, what were called yuppies. I'm not sure if yuppie is even a term that's used anymore. Um, Yup, Y-U-P, young urban professional, uh, referred to... Uh, essentially trader bros, I guess you'd call them these days, just Mm. completely shallow or or maybe crypto bros, people who are Mm. getting in on something that's making them really, really rich without them having to learn a skill or do anything. Uh, Or even necessarily like have depth as people. Yeah, they don't need to be smart or or good at anything. They just Yeah, the whole point is making money. They're making money and wearing nice clothes, basically. That's their whole... Have you ever seen Wolf of Wall Street? There you go. Yeah, well, I, I I didn't choose The Wolf of Wall Street, but I did choose Wall Street, uh, the, that makes the Oliver Stone movie. Uh, Wall Street is excellent. It's about uh, Charlie Sheen plays a young yuppie guy, and uh, he is trying to break into the, the world of Wall Street, and he is taken under the wing of the single most cutthroat stock guy that he knows, a guy named Gordon Gecko, and... Uh, Gecko is really, really, really rich. He knows exactly how to play the game. And he, uh, of course, is a completely amoral asshole who will backstab anybody just to make more money. Mm. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Okay. Uh, so We're both uh, a little under the weather right now, in case anyone's wondering. We're recording separately. Yeah. We're both. So if we cough a little, we apologize. But yeah. we're way over here. You're fine. But... Uh, the Charlie Sheen character, a guy named, I think his name is Bud Fox. And, uh, Bud Fox, you know, is eager to, to buy in. He wants to be rich. He wants to be another one of these rich, uh, yuppie stock trading asshole guys. And over the course of the, the movie, he learns just how hideously out of his depths he actually is. And he wanted in. Uh, this one was made by Oliver Stone, and Oliver Stone has always been incredibly critical of the things he tends to make films about. Uh, you know, Wall Street is very critical of Wall Street. Uh, Born on the Fourth of July is very critical of the Vietnam War. Platoon is very critical of the Vietnam War. Nixon is critical of Nixon. Uh, w is critical of W. I think JFK was more about a lot of the uncertainty people felt at the time. Um mm. But yeah, what he was really trying to do with a lot of his films is capture the spirit of the era. And I feel like Wall Street really does that. It points, in 1987 this movie came out, points to Wall Street and says, these people are awful and they are ruining the world. Here's what they look like on the inside. There's nothing inside of them. They are just full of greed. They might be witty and charming, but they're not good people. He's really trying to rip wealth away from the wealthy. Uh, It's great. It's just really, really great. It's a really stirring drama. It actually manages to make things like commodities training seem really dramatic. And uh, then, of course, Michael Douglas steps in as Gordon Gecko and totally walks away with the whole movie. There's this one speech he gives in the middle where he talks about how uh, it's it's a really famous speech, the greed is good speech. Yeah. Where uh, he talks about how greed, that is just acquisition for the sake of it, and acquisition for your own sake rather than helping other, other people, is kind of what drives America. And he makes it sound really, really convincing. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Uh, and golly, if that weren't a clarion call for the age... Uh, Michael Douglas really, really uh, uh, just sells that speech. He sells the whole character. Uh, Charlie Sheen is really good in this movie. I'm not 
keen on Daryl Hannah in general, so it's everyone, just sort of... Everyone always gives of... Daryl Hannah crap for this movie. I think she's fine in this movie. Is she hmm. giving... She doesn't have as interesting a character as... Yeah. Definitely not Michael Douglas, but even like Charlie Shane and Martin Shane is in it as well. Um, I think she's fine. I, I, I always feel like people really just like had the daggers out for Daryl Hannah here, and I don't never quite understood it. Well, it's, um, it's not here. It's not here. It's just in in general, I'm not a big fan of Daryl Hannah. I, that's I fine. I, but I, not you. Life. I've just noticed other people like always singling Daryl Hannah out as like you want to hear like the worst performance in a good movie. It's Daryl Hannah and Wall Street. And I'm like, really? Well, I mean, I, I suppose compared to Michael Douglas, maybe, but, you even, know... She's... Even so, I think she's fine. I think she's mm-hmm. fine. I, I agree with you here. I think it's a really good pick. Um, I didn't pick it because there was an absolute wealth of choices, but um, your your argument that uh, the greed is good speech is very... I think it's very important to the 1980s, and I think it really cuts to what was happening to America uh, sort of philosophically in the 1980s. Mm. Um capitalism uh, and Reaganomics yeah. were changing the way Americans viewed things. And also uh, things like uh, the rise of uh, Christian televangelism where, and we saw this, if you saw the, the movie, uh, the eyes of Tammy Faye, they talked about this as well, where mm-hmm. the idea of Christianity coming from something that is, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, all about like charity and humility. And then finally mm-hmm. saying, no, God wants us to be rich. And it's all kind of the same idea, the idea that capitalism became mm. the personality of America and not just the means by which our economy is based. Yeah, and it's something yeah. that everyone should aspire to, is to just acquire, uh, is a very uh, tidily presented in Wall Street, which is a very good movie. I like I like Wall Street a lot. I, I do want to uh, pause for a moment because uh, one, one of the best films about sort of the attitude of the 1980s, uh, I feel, was made in the late 90s. Uh, well, I, I guess there are two, because there was um, there was American Psycho in 2000, which is kind of a child of Wall Street. It kind of shows what really begat, uh, what the yuppie culture begat, like this kind of soulless, empty, serial killer type who will just take yeah. and take and kill people at his own whim because he has no morals and, and human life is annoying to him. Uh, and the other one is The Last Days of Disco by Whit Stillman. Mm. That one came out in 98. And uh, that takes place in, uh, like, it, on, on the, the chyron on the screen is the very early 80s. And uh, it's about how, uh, yeah, disco, just sort of as this musical movement, is kind of dying out. The people who go out and dress up well are, uh, you know, l- l- weaning themselves off of booze. A lot of them are getting sexually transmitted infections. And uh, we're just sort of seeing the end of this freewheeling fun that disco brought in. And that movie ends with a lot of people saying things like, you know what? It's too tiring for me to care for you anymore. I'm going to have to look after myself. And I think that's an incredibly 80s notion, this sort of me generation. And I feel like that's uh, intrinsic also to Wall Street, this idea that we are making money for ourselves and that itself is good. What are we using the money for? Nothing. We're just getting more of it. (laughs) <laughs> and there's a, a really great speech in Wall Street as well, where uh, Gordon Gecko near the end of the film, has done a horrible backstabbing maneuver uh, for the tra- on the Charlie Sheen character. And he just asks at one point, you know, you were already rich. You have, like, all these mansions, and you have a private jet, and, and you know, cell phones, which is a, a huge thing in 1987. How much is enough? He just asks him over and over again, how much is enough? Like, when do you stop earning? And... 
and Gordon Gecko just says it's never enough. It's about getting. It's not about having. And and that's uh, so much of what yuppie culture was about. It's just about more and more acquisition. It's not working toward a goal. Acquisition is the drug itself. You know, it's interesting because I feel like directly tied into that is the idea of excess, which is oh. also very much part of the 80s uh, uh, culture and aesthetic. Yeah. Um, d- subtlety was not rewarded uh, very much uh, in a lot of popular culture in the 1980s, which brings me to my number of pick, uh, my, my first pick, uh-huh. um, which I wanted to do a film that represented the way that MTV was sort of uh, affecting how stories were being told. Um, it also has to do with how a lot of there was a lot of mixture of media. Um, you know, m- musicians had always been in movies, but like there was a lot of um, sort of brand synergy, uh-huh. where like if you were the biggest pop star in the world, we needed to get you in a movie like now, and we need to sell soundtracks. Um, but also the idea that we had a lot of the pop stars in the 80s had a very distinct persona. They weren't, like, putting together these, like, bland Elvis rom-coms just to make them feel appealing. Like, they were trying to sell the uniqueness of their personality mm. to a world. And they were having more and more creative control over the types of movies that they were appearing in. So I wanted to... And this is a movie I actually recommend. I know this movie has gotten a lot of crap. Okay, But I actually saw this for the very first time while researching this, because it was a prominent film I'd never got around to. And I actually completely fell in love with Under the Cherry Moon. <laughs> you are the only person I've ever hear say that they even liked Under the Cherry Moon. Okay, I will M- say this right now. Much lesser calling it a definitive film of the era. I, I, I think it is. And I, I'm, I'm talking this, uh, uh, I, I saw this with my partner, Mich- uh, uh, Michelle, M. Lapis de Silva. Uh, they hadn't seen it either. Mm. We watched it just for this, and within a minute, we fell in love with it. Like, because we all of a sudden, like at first, we were like, "What the hell?" This is a movie starring Prince. Prince directed it after um, I think it was Mary Lambert uh, had left the production, uh-huh. um, and uh, and we we keyed into its wavelength uh, I- I- immediately. Uh, this is a movie that stars Prince. As a con artist on, I think it's like the French Riviera. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's on the French Riviera. He's, it's very glamorous, and he works at a nightclub as a musician because he's Prince. And he decides he is going to seduce and steal money from a rich debutante played in her debut film performance by Kristen Scott Thomas. And that's the movie, basically. He's he's going to seduce her. Uh, her dad, her parents do not approve because he is riffraff. He is trash. He is poor. Um, the implication is also, you know, he's black, so they don't approve of that either. But that doesn't get talked about too directly. Uh, and this movie is pure, absolute, undiluted, and clearly intentional camp. And it is absolutely glorious in every conceivable way everything about it comes either straight out of a prince music video or a goddamn perfume commercial every single black and white image is so gloriously overwrought that it feels like uh, uh um you know like when you'd watch like a cartoon and they were doing like a parody of what french art house movies are that's every single still frame of under the cherry moon 
Every single frame, every single edit of this thing is specifically choreographed to evoke mind-blowing pretension. And then you see Prince naked in a bathtub drowning like a rubber ducky and calling it a fascist. And you're just like, he knows this is funny. <laughs> he clearly knows this is funny. He clearly knows this is completely over the top. He's he's mugging to the camera. He's wearing the most amazing clothes. This movie is it, it was it was lambasted. Everyone hated it. It won. I think the, it tied the Razzie Award for worst picture. Um, everyone had loved Purple Rain. Purple Rain is you know it, it's, it's got a better soundtrack, but like and but the soundtrack to this movie, which was released as the album Parade, also did really well. Like the movie did, but the soundtrack did great. Mm. Um, this movie is kind of gloriously kitschy and it, it definitely incredibly queer, which I appreciate. And it is that kind of glorious MTV pretension that you, you just don't see anymore. And I really hope people give this movie a chance if you've like ever like, oh, I heard it was terrible, I never saw it. That's most people I know. Uh-huh. Go into it expecting camp. This is the kind of like movie that like people should be like doing monologues from on like RuPaul's Drag Race. Like it's that kind of like the dialogue is absolutely exquisitely stupid, uh, and but they know it and they're go- and they're going for it in every conceivable way. I love this movie to pieces. Unironically, I love this movie. I think Prince knew what he was doing here, uh, and I think it's a treat. Um, okay, I'll have to take your word for it because I actually haven't seen Under the Cherry Moon. I've only heard the legends and uh, I've been warned away from it on multiple occasions. I have I, not. Uh, I, I honestly feel like a lot of the people who don't like this movie are assuming it's unironic. They, 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 they assume that this movie is sort of accidentally funny. If you go into it knowing that it's funny, mm-hmm. If you go into it knowing that Prince clearly is having a, a laugh, because it, he, you can see him b- barely like keep it together in a lot of scenes. Well, that, that's um, the thing. Pr- Prince was a very earnest performer. He he didn't mm-hmm. joke around a lot, so yeah. it's difficult for me to accept that he would intentionally make a comedy film, even as a camp, even from a camp angle. Well, because the sinc- because the sincerity is so heightened. That you can't help but sort of appreciate how arch it is. And it pulls you out of the movie just enough uh-huh. that you can appreciate that this is an over-the-top performance that is meant to be treated uh, uh, as something that's almost more abstract than that. And I think laughter is definitely a valid thing. I think there's also a genuinely uh, a, a genuine attempt at okay. sort of a, a, a lustfulness, eroticism to it. Um, but no, I think, I think Prince knew this was funny. I think Prince actually had enough of a sense of humor... To know that he isn't just actually doing, like, uh, uh, like a French New Wave film. I think he knew that. I think he knows that this is we are going so far over the edge of style that some people will not be able to join us. Mm. Uh, but I think it's a treat, and I and I think it is very very uh, indicative of how far how much power pop stars had at the moment to really dictate the type of material that they were doing. Like I, I thought about maybe doing like desperately seeking Susan for Madonna, for example, or a few okay. other examples, but like this one seemed like such a, and it's a, it's a, and it's a joy to recommend something that a lot of people don't know exists or is good if they do. So I, I had yeah, to take yeah. the opportunity. What's your next pick? 
Well, um, I, I I have numerous films on my list that are sort of uh, that are indicative of uh, or, or representative of. of uh, musical trends of the 1980s. So I'll, mm. I'll do one of those. Um, I'm going to choose a film that stars Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, well, he, he's uncredited, but he's in it. If, you, if <laughs> okay. he's, one, he's one of the dancers, if you look in the background. But in this film, Shabadoo plays Ozone, Boogaloo Shrimp plays Turbo, and Lucinda Dickey plays Special K. Uh, this is uh, Joel Silberg's Breakin' from 1984. Uh, it is a... It blew the lid off of breakdancing, man. <laughs> uh, breakdancing was a trend in the 1980s. Uh, it was a certain kind of dancing that involved a lot of uh, spinning <coughs> floor work and contortionism. It took a lot of uh, an energy and, and musculature to do uh, correctly. It was made by Canon, though, so it was made for like really, really cheap. Uh, because it was made for cheap, though... They were able to get just real street dancers. So the dancing in this is insanely good. Uh, it was shot down in Venice Beach where it's set. And uh, what's the story? Who cares? Uh, <laughs> Lucinda Dickey plays a special uh, Kelly. Her nickname is Special K. She falls in with these two dancers. There's kind of a love triangle, kind of. And uh, uh, yeah, and they just learn to dance and be friends together. And, the, you know, there's a dance competition and uh, there's an agent involved as well. Who plays the agent? Somebody notable, right? Uh, Kristen um, McDonald plays her boyfriend, but I can't remember if he's the agent or not. But really, right. basically, boils down to is she's from like a rich family, and they're from the poor part of town. And yeah, uh, will will the rich people be able to tolerate these poor people? Y- y- no, actually, is the answer to that question. Uh, but yeah, Breakin is really glorious in its simplicity. When I think about uh, Breakin. I think about something you've said a lot, uh, which is that uh, you can learn a lot more from a decade by go- from the movies that maybe aren't considered timeless, but were like completely desperately trying to uh, key into trends. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, breaking. They wanted to just get in while the iron's hot. Breakdancing is hot right now. We need a movie out in six months. Mm-hmm. We made breaking, and because the movie is like so low budget and so kind of shoestring and guerrilla style it couldn't help but be authentic. So a lot of the outfits you see in this, a lot of the settings you see, a lot of the the design you see in this movie is what the 80s actually looked like. This wasn't some set designer trying to make this look hip. This was just what they had. Uh, so a lot of these weird styles that you see in Breakin', yeah, that's that's what you'd see. That's what you would see when yeah. you went down to Venice Boardwalk. And yeah, saw they the weren't trying too hard. That's actually like what, what was actually going on at the time, yeah. Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, uh, Shabadoo, uh, Aldolfo Gutierrez Quinones, Shabadoo, uh, passed away recently. Uh, oh. yeah, he died at the age of 65. So, uh, re- rest in peace, Shabadoo. Um, Boogaloo Shrimp, as far as I know, is still around. Uh, but yeah, the, the two of them, uh, were just wonderful together. Lucinda Dickey is, uh, she's like, she was like the big actor that they got for this. Um, there was a brief moment where Lucinda Dickey seemed like the star on the rise, but she was mm. a star in canon films, so like there was a little asterisk next to that. Yeah, because like, she was in Breaking and Breaking Two, and she was in Ninja Three: The Domination. Yeah, which yep. is one of the most incredible movies ever made, and you absolutely must see this damn thing. Yeah, nin- Ninja because, Three. Holy crap! Uh, it was um, what was the first? It was called Shadow of the Ninja, right? The first one. I forget. 
But uh, um, it was basically, they were basically and, they were... the excuse me. It was Enter the Ninja. Yeah. Then it was Return of the Ninja, and then Ninja Three: The Domination. Those are like the the three canon ninja films. They're not really closely related, but I recommend you watch them all. Ninja Three is insane. Yeah, it's ninja. Just ninja Three wonder, is basically wonderful... take a take a low budget ninja movie from the eighties and add The Exorcist. Boom. <laughs> You're possessed by a ninja. That's Lucinda Dickey. She's possessed by a ninja. And I think it like infects her through an arcade machine. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, she uh, she was in a, a slasher film in 1988 called Cheerleader Camp, and then she retired. She left yeah. acting. She didn't want to do it anymore. So uh, good for her. She doesn't have to act. But yeah, she was uh, she she really brought a lot of heart and uh, clearly was carrying a lot of breakin because a lot of the dancers were dancers and not actors. <coughs> Oh, we both sound good, don't we? Yeah, sorry about that. No, you're fine. You know, I'm glad you picked Break In uh, for for this pick because it saved me the trouble of doing a tie because my other pick is Break In 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> um, Bre- Break In 2 is also good. I think Break In is the superior film. Break well, In 2 it, is remembered just because it has the great subtitle. I, here's the thing, though. I, everyone really gloms onto the subtitle of Break In 2, Electric Boogaloo. And indeed, Electric Boogaloo is a great subtitle. No, yeah. The, it's a cliche now, but like, let's not forget. It's just like, oh, that's it means nothing. It uh, doesn't mean it doesn't evoke anything. It's so it's so nonsensical. Well, well, Boogaloo, but it just that, it, that was uh, Boogaloo Shrimp. That that was his name. Yeah. And uh, at the end of he the doesn't first get electrified. At the well, it's it's like the electric slide, the electric Boogaloo. It's just the name of a dance. I realize that, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with the plot of the movie, other than Boogaloo Shrimp is in it, and he's not playing himself. No, so, no, anyway, uh, Break In was such a gigantic smash hit in 1984 mm. that they fast tracked Break In 2 Electric Boogaloo. And I don't mean it came out in two years. I don't mean it came out in one year. It, I mean, Break In <laughs> came out in 1984 year. and Break In 2 came out in 1984. L- later in 1984. They, they really rushed that thing. <clears throat> they started uh, filming it without a script, literally without a script. All they could do was shoot dance numbers and the hope that eventually they'd tie in together event- like later on. Like, it's an yeah. incredible. Which, which is, again, if you want a film that is made specifically of its time, find a movie that was rushed into production to capitalize on a trend, because, mwah, totally 80s. Um, um, the Boogaloo, by the way, uh, finds its origins in the mid-60s in Chicago, and uh, we might call it popping these days. Hmm. Uh, a sort of very jerky, pose-centric form of dancing. Uh, it, it, it's sort of, the word is derived from boogie. Uh, James Brown. Yeah wrote a saying about the boogaloo so it's it's been around it wasn't just yeah. sort of a made-up word for these movies no no no, it wasn't but like electric boogaloo which is actually like one of the songs in the movie has electric boogaloo in the lyrics i assume it was written for the film but in any case it, it listen it's it's grand as glorious it works breaking two i the reason why i'm going to give it put it on my list instead of breaking and i agree that breaking kind of works a little better as a film uh-huh. it's not a particularly ambitious movie but it it's about people who are street dancers mm-hmm. and that's it like there's no other there's no other there's no other fluff to it. It's say they're trying to break into the to the dance industry and that's all they're doing. Breaking two, in addition to having that subtitle, in addition to having glorious clothing, in addition to having really fun dance numbers, they're still really great. Um, the plot is so absolute. I feel like the plot is like ingrained into the consciousness of people who've never seen it. Which is, uh, we have to save the youth center from gentrification and evil capitalists, and in order yeah, to do that, yeah. we have to put on a show. 
Like that's that's a that's, story from uh, I don't know which one it is, but surely there's uh, like a Judy Garland Mickey Rooney movie. I feel like Mickey Rooney did this with uh, Andy Hardy. Uh, We did this. We saw this when we did um, over on Patreon. We have a show called Only the Best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. And one of the early nominees was a really, really great film called Skippy. Uh, Skippy was based on a comic strip. And it's about a a boy who is a a little kid, like eight year old. Uh, He's rich. His family's rich. But he's best friends with the boy from literally the wrong sides of the track. He lives in the same, in a shanty town, and that boy's dog gets taken by a dog catcher, and they have to raise enough money to get him out of the pound before the dog catchers do what the dog catchers do. And one of the things they do is they put on a show. It is an old trope. The specific nineteen eighties version of this is, I think, absolutely codified in Breaking Two. Uh, the other thing Breaking <laughs> Two is more than Breaking uh, is supernatural. Like it actually has a there's, lot there's of a, the the dancing on the wall sort of stuff. You yep. mean like the the gravity yeah. defying? Boogaloo Shrimp does like he dances like up on the walls and the ceiling of his house, and it's the exact same uh, set they used for the scene in Nightmare on Elm Street, where the the girl gets uh, dragged along the wall as she's being murdered by Freddy Krueger. Um, but also, there's a scene later on where uh, Boogaloo Shrimp is trying to prevent. These like construction guys from like getting to the youth center and, and breaking it down, and he steals himself, and there's a chase, and he falls down some steps and hurts himself. And then we mm-hmm. cut to the hospital where everyone shows up to make him feel better, and they decide you know, how are we going to do that? Well, we'll dance, uh, and then they dance, and then they dance so hard that everyone in the hospital starts dancing as well. People get out of wheelchairs. <laughs> People, like, break out of their casts. A guy mm. who is had, having, like, heart surgery, like, dies, but then the dance music comes on and he gets up. Like, it's... At the end of the dance number, Boogaloo Shrimp still has his leg in a cast, and I'm just like, I thought we danced that off. What are we doing here? How is this... What are the rules? Um... Break into break in and break into. I they're they're naive movies, but they are not. And I but here's the thing: I'd rather a movie about like a topical trend be naive than cynical. I would rather yeah. it just be, hey, you know what's really cool right now? What the kids are into, and well, all, we're just going to celebrate all, every, it, and we're going to have a good time. And all of these kids are well intentioned and actually care about things, and they're good people. And it's you shouldn't be scared of things that are new and popular, and the kids are all right. And I, I like that vibe. I think it works. Um, I, I I think if we look at any film, uh, you know, on a broad enough timeline, it's going to seem dated after a while. Uh, no matter what they're doing, it's gonna it's gonna fizzle out. Everything is yeah. going to be trendy for a little bit. Uh, I, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with people who call like certain movies timeless because nothing's really timeless. Everything's mm-hmm. made in the era it's made in. It's reflecting on the time it was made. Uh, timeless in that it might still be appealing to a modern audience. That's another way to mm-hmm. put that. I think I think that's what we mean is that if you watch it today, there may be elements of it that are not just in like the clothing because you have no control over that, but maybe the style or the attitudes represented in it. Sometimes those things do not age well at all, and now they're what was seemed acceptable to some at the time now feels completely repugnant today. But there's a lot of movies that I feel like you can watch and you can, like Casablanca is a good example where it feels like a period piece now, whereas it used to just be a contemporary film. But beyond that, it works. Mm. You know, whereas Break-In feels so specifically of its time that calling it a period piece doesn't quite cut it. You have to call this like an 80s movie. And it really is. 
Yeah, both of them. And then there was another, there was a follow-up, which is not really worth watching. It's okay, it's not great, uh, called Rappin', which was trying yeah. to do for breaking, for rapping what breakdancing, uh, what breaking movies did for rapping. Um, they are technically the same continuity, because at least one character shows up in all three movies. Uh-huh. Uh, but other than that, it's not a lot of connective tissue, and it's just okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's your next pick? Well, uh, I guess, since we talked about timelessness, I'm going to talk about a movie that is... Uh, one of those movies that gets like really marketed a lot uh, was incredibly marketed incredibly heavily at the time, uh, and a lot of people have said is very very timeless, and that little kids could watch this today and still really uh, get by on it. But I think that this is actually very much a film of the era. It represented a lot of filmmaking trends of the era. It re- represented a lot of what families, uh, suburban families, were going through in the era, and that's Steven Spielberg's E.T. Okay, uh, that makes sense. Uh, E.T. is a, E.T. is a movie about divorce. Uh, it's, it's not just a delightful fantasy about these little kids who are befriending an alien. It's about, uh, the fact that it's a single mom raising these kids. Um, and in fact, uh, Spielberg has even said in interviews that, uh, he, when his parents got divorced, he came up with sort of an imaginary friend to sort of protect him from the, the turbulence at home. And E.T. was supposed to be sort of the real version of that imaginary friend. Mm. Uh, E.T. was so successful, it spawned this entire subgenre, almost an entire attitude about children's entertainment, about how kids were now permitted to essentially go out into the world on their own and find their adventures because they weren't being supervised anymore. There weren't yeah. two parents around. There wasn't that sort of uh, 1950s post-war nuclear family thing hanging over the suburbs. Now the suburbs had effectively been broken, um, which uh, th- this was actually incredibly important in the 1980s because the, the 1980s were a very conservative time. And there was a lot of uh, references to the 1950s in 80s entertainment because that's where nostalgia was at the time. And I'll, I'll we'll get to that in later picks on this list. But I feel that E.T., was trying to romanticize and make okay this rise in uh, like skyrocketing divorce rates that were going on in the like the late seventies and early eighties, uh, and show that kids are going to be okay. There's going to be this sort of ersatz father figure in the form of ET, or they'll they'll go out and they'll find new friends. They'll find ways to take care of themselves. It was really almost an irresponsible way to gloss over the fact that dads or moms are like leaving a family behind. And I feel like E.T. along with an entire subgenre of films about bad dads are filmmakers trying to make an excuse for their own absenteeism or bad parenting. Like, oh, I'm, well, I've, of course I'm away from my kids a lot, but I made all of these movies about being away from kids and how bad that is. So I recognize <laughs> that this is bad. No, no, I'm not neglecting my family because I'm making a family about how bad it is to neglect your family. Uh, I feel like E.T. was sort of like the, the very first crack in that particular genre. I, lo- I love how unbelievably cynical you are about E.T., a movie that most people look at with the absolute fondness of mm. pure, innocent childhood. And you're not wrong. Well, it, but yeah. I, I love that that's where you go with it. I, I, maybe it's because I didn't see E.T. as a child. I didn't see it for the first time until I was in my 30s. So uh, I, I was able to sort of 
I was actually on uh, the the mom was played by D Wallace. I was actually on her side in the movie. Yeah. I, I wasn't uh, there with the kids. I wasn't pretending to be a kid with an ET friend. Also, I think ET looks freaking creepy. Uh, just the design of the monster it's a weird is really monster, strange yeah. looking to me. Like it, it's I odd actually, that I the appre- kids found that thing to be charming. I actually like what's something I actually like about. It? There's a lot of things I love about ET. I think ET is a great movie, by the way. Um, I think uh, I think the strangeness of ET and oh. the fact that it isn't like immediately cuddly, I think is great actually. Because when you think about it, you know, it, it's a life form from another planet. It wouldn't like be test marketed to be the absolute cuddliest thing in the world. That would be like a mogwai. Yeah. Like, no, it's actually, it actually is alien. It is unusual. And these kids have enough love to, for that. They're not like, you know, Drew Barrymore freaks out a little bit, but you know, she's a very little kid and she was very surprised, but then she like completely falls in love with it because this is, E.T. is also in a way a latchkey kid. I mean, he was, abandoned by his parents who apparently took a really long time to figure out he was gone well he, he wasn't which is not encouraging he wasn't a uh, little kid he was he was like a professional botanist uh, i don't know think that's how, we don't know how old et was i was under the impression that, that life cycle i was under the impression that et that et's family went out on a picnic and they all left and et wasn't there when they left and like I guess their their species like experiences time differently, and so it's sort of the thing where like we got in the car, we were gone for five minutes before we realized that oh no, we left Kevin home alone. Like it's kind of like that, but with ET. Oh, I, maybe maybe I, that's I always my saw that he was he was left. It was like the Martian. He was left behind on like a, a work mission because the, he's seen like scanning plants and stuff. And uh, clearly... I just figured he was a kid who was into plants. <laughs> I, I I always thought, thought that ET was was a botanist and he needed to get home and he scienced the shit out of it. That's that it's the same story as the Martian. I suppose uh, that is true. And listen, uh, maybe uh, listen. I'm not I, you're like you. I didn't grow up watching ET for whatever reason. I watched a ton of '80s movies. I saw ET when I was a kid. I maybe saw it once when I was a kid, and then I didn't watch it again until I was an adult. But I did love it. And one of the things I love about ET that I never would have thought about at the time was. Steven Spielberg shoots this movie at a child's eyeline. So it brings almost the every down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, almost every shot in this movie, every prominent shot in this movie, is told for like the camera is at a kid's eye level. So even if you're an adult watching it, you are reminded of what it is like to be small, what it is like to be, live in a world that isn't really designed for you. Mm. And I think that is a really great, effective choice. And I agree with you that this is a movie that really codified what kids' entertainment was going to be for a while. That it was going to be from a child's perspective, that it was going to center on the childhood experience and was going to allow children to take a lot of agency yeah. in the stories they were going to tell. And we got a lot of rip-off movies to this. And I actually have a movie that... It's funny that you started with, like, you, you, you went with the film that started this. Uh-huh. And the film that I selected for my next pick is more on the tail end of this, at least okay. in the 80s. Because there's a lot in the middle, like The Goonies, a movie which has some amazing production design, but otherwise I don't feel as aged very well. And even at the, even when I was a, like when I was a, a, a fat kid, I was like the Truffle Shuffle is an act of absolute cruelty, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. hated those kids for making Chunk. Even calling him Chunk is fucked up. Like 
you lost me early on in that movie, <laughs> even as a child. Well, I think I think that was a big part of the like Richard Donner really tried to just like E. T. did. He tried to capture just sort of how cruel and messy little kids are. And I think there's I realize that, but there's, they're, they're there's a danger. Messy, with but there's that. at least an honesty to that. You know, it's not if you're to if you're on, innocent. If you're one of the kids who, as a child, was on the receiving end of that cruelty, it doesn't endear you to the kids on screen. So yeah, I realize yeah. that everyone people might have different experiences with that, but whatever. The other thing that I started noticing from kids' movies in this era is that they started making movies about how the stuff kids are into uh-huh. is not something that you have to grow out of. In fact, <clears throat> being into kid stuff is something that will save the absolute world. Well, that that's and that's a message. Uh, it's a very. Um, I, 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 I guess you'd call it a. a I'd say I was going to say that's like particular to a certain generation, but I guess it isn't because every generation does this. You know, there's there's always going to be the movie about how knowing a lot about sort of like a pop culture obsession will have a fantasy movie where that proves to be incredibly useful in some way. I feel like that didn't used to exist, and like I, I can't recall a lot of examples of that in like the fifties. Well, like, but I think it's yeah. because it. Pop, popular culture, the way we consume popular culture, the volume of it, uh, the age mm. at which it was aimed at us all had a lot to do with it. Well, and, I, and, I, and I'll grant you that there are kind of exceptions to this. If you look at, like, the proto-version, there were a lot of, like, movies about uh, kids and their obsessions with hot rods at the time. Or even if you look at a movie like The Blob, where all of the adults in town don't believe the teenagers, that there's a blob in town, and they actually, the teenagers yeah. have to save the day because nobody trusts them because... And there's this weird stigma against being a teenager. Um, yeah, I, but the I, specifically pop culture obsession will get you, will save the world, and by extension is something you never need to give up, was something that I glummed onto in a couple of movies. I'm going to name drop my two favorites, but I'm going to pick the most 80s one of all. Uh, the Last Starfighter, which said that if you got good at video games, you could save the universe. Uh, actually a legitimately good movie. Like I really, really like that film a lot. Uh, then there's The Monster Squad, which uh-huh. said that your obsession with horror will help save the day when monsters turn out to be real. That's something yeah, that... that a lot of like modern horror kind of deals with. Like, oh no, vampires are attacked. Fortunately, I've seen a lot of movies. Like uh, that happens nowadays. That was uh, that was also the plot of um, uh, Fright Night. Yeah, Fright Night was another good example of this. But the one I'm going to pick is the movie that took that as a premise that the idea that being good at something kids are good at is something that you can succeed with, that you can actually succeed in life. While also acknowledging that the that fundamental idea is also based on capitalism, that we are indeed selling something to children. We're telling children, you do not have to give up on these products. So mm. the film I'm going to pick is The Wizard. <laughs> oh, capitalism run amok. That's a good oh, choice. Oh, The Wizard is a... Is a, is a t- it, it, there, a lot of people have a lot of fondness for The Wizard. I did as a child, too. I'm a little embarrassed by it now. Uh, the Wizard. Oh, I, I, I rushed out to see that thing in theaters. I was so same. excited. Same. The Wizard was the Space Jam of its day. Like it's an absolute marketing cash sink. It is the weirdest pitch on it. Ignoring ignoring the video game tie-ins of the Wizard. The pitch is weird. Uh, what if Rain Man, but ten years old? Like everyone's ten. Like it's really weird. So uh, Fred Savage uh, has. A brother who is autistic, and they go on the lamb. They go on the run. They're running across country hmm. together, and they're little kids. And it turns out that his little brother is a video game wunderkind. He is he is absolutely unstoppable at video games. 
there's this great bit where like Fred Savage is trying to con his way into some free food and he like just puts like a quarter in a in an arcade machine. Okay, you play double dragon for a minute. I'm gonna try to do my magic and steal some food. And then like he comes back and he's like, Okay, we gotta go, the cops are coming. Whoa, you got a hundred thousand points at double dragon? Which is a pretty hard I, game, by the way, but uh... it's not an easy game, especially at the time. So I'm not saying it's an unimpressive accomplishment, but the idea that being good at video games was a superpower. <laughs> not just like something that like, you know, might benefit you in some way, but like just the sheer act of being in video of being good at video games is something that they're then able to monetize. He's gonna like win video game competitions all around the world. There are bad guys who are like super evil and you know it because like they own all 180 Nintendo games and they've beaten them all and they mm. own a power glove because it's so bad. So bad. Um, Nintendo sponsored the shit out of this movie. Nintendo this is a movie and, and that exists Studio, to sell Nintendo. Like, it's a universal film. Um, yeah. I, I know it's a universal film because a third of the movie takes place at Universal Studios Hollywood. Yeah. And they, like, go on the tour, and they go to the attractions, and they explore the park, and they talk a lot about it. Uh, They hook up Nintendos wherever they can. Even the people on the trail of Fred Savage are uh, are video game experts and hook up the Nintendo whenever they can. Oh, golly. And, uh, of course, the the big uh, climax of the movie was uh, during the video game competition. The main character, the wizard character, is doing very, very well. But in order to level the playing field, they have to introduce a new game. And, oh my goodness, dear friends, how exciting it was. How thrilling to see the debut on the big screen of Super Mario Bros. 3. Not now, one, not, for not the one, record... Not two, but, not, but three, which was a pretty was a, big deal. No, Super Mario Bros. 3 was a gigantic video game release. Not just because it was a big film in a franchise, but because that was actually a legitimately great video game. Very mm. well designed. Really uh, um, pushed that franchise forward in a way that, like, if we were doing the history of Super Mario Brothers, it would be a really important chapter. Um, but yeah, to see... The, imagine if, like, the Mortal Kombat movie was marketed as, we're going to show you all the new characters, but only in the movie. Uh-huh. So you got to pay to see the movie. And then, if you pay to see the wizard and you pay really close attention when they're playing the game, they showed you secrets. <laughs> there was like, the, the kid somehow managed, there's like this one part in an early level where if you like crouch for like a weirdly long time, like five seconds for no reason, on this one like cloud, you would fall through the cloud and then be able to run behind the map. And it's mm. like, how did, the, I don't care how much of a Wunderkind this person is, how the fuck would you guess that like there's no conceivable way but it's just there to get kids to watch the movie over and over and over again to collect the secrets it is ostensibly a movie about kid power right it's about you know kids doing kid stuff and finding their way through the world Mm. using that and then finding their their family and their community and you know there's some earnest stuff in it but Using that, using that E.T. mentality, using that, uh, you know, your, your childhood will save the day mentality for no greater purpose than to actually sell you a distinct product. Not a general concept of a product like the Monster <laughs> Squad with horror or the last Starfighter with video games, but specifically Super Mario Brothers 3 and the Power Glove. Like, I did. everyone I knew at the time wanted a Power Glove. Did they want to play any Power Glove games? No, because they all sucked. 
The Power Glove was a terrible controller. It did not work as a controller. It was because you a controller you kind of need two hands, and so like you had to use it with one. It made no, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. It made no sense. But we wanted it because this movie strongly suggested that if we had one, we would be cooler people. <laughs> I, we'd be like the character is named Lucas. We'd yeah. be like Lucas. Yeah, and do not look up what happened to the guy uh, who played Lucas, because, uh, yeah. mm. uh, but uh, we're just going to say right now, that the, or I'll say rather, The Wizard is an extremely 1980s movie, uh-huh. and I think it is, I think it is the, in many respects, like, you take a look at E.T., a movie that was made, I don't think Spielberg was trying to change the way children's movies were made with E.T., I think he just wanted to tell a good story, but then it did, because people everyone wanted to copy it, and then... When you get that many copies of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of E.T. to end up with the wizard is kind of fucked up, actually. Yeah. Uh, what's your next pick? Um, gee, I don't, I don't have anything that's like... Uh, uh, I guess I do have kind of a segue, because uh, the sort of the, the kids rule mentality of, of the wizard mm-hmm. isn't really a part of uh, this next film. But this was a film that did communicate to teens mm. what it was they should be like or perhaps uh, reflect on their lives in a much more realistic way than teen films had in the past and that is John mm. Hughes' The Breakfast Club uh, Okay, The Breakfast Club uh, is, uh, this is a film I watched incessantly as a kid, it's another one of those big popular ones that gets talked about a lot but um, yeah, just to recap very quickly it's about a group of teenagers who have to go into their high school on a Saturday because uh, they're on detention. They've each done something horrible. And like a, like a play, they very slowly start to communicate, figure out what they did to uh, deserve that attention. And they all begin sort of bonding and exposing themselves as being more than the types they are superficially. Uh, Judd Nelson plays sort of the, the troublemaker, the, the bad kid who's always in detention. Hmm. Uh, Molly Ringwald plays like the prom queen kind of character who uh, is is very her parents are very very rich. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall plays kind of the nerdy character. Uh, Emilio Estevez plays the jock, and uh, Ali Sheedy play. They describe her as a basket case. She's sort of like the goth. She's a you know, yeah. very very quiet. Uh, the the outsider type. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, while they. D- at first sort of exemplify those uh, archetypes. We do learn over the course of the film that uh, they're actually much more than those archetypes. And they actually have a lot of anxieties that they talk about. Uh, Molly Ringwald is on record very eloquently about sort of the, the much more problematic aspects of John Hughes career, of which there are many, uh, mm-hmm. not just in this film, but in a lot of his films, uh, 16 candles in particular. Oh, there's some uh, fucked up shit in that movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, but uh, this film also felt uh, at the time, at the time it was like a hit. And then like maybe a decade later, we realized, wait a minute, this movie's like weirdly mir- miraculous and how honest it is about sort of the teen experience and how it really tried to do something with uh, teen drama in a new kind of way. And I feel like the, the Breakfast Club was really kind of a turning point in a lot of entertainment uh, in that it started looking at the teenage experience is more than just fun, love, and wahey, and actually had a lot more in common with something like um, 
it, it doesn't go quite as hard as something like the last picture show, but it has more in common with that than it does of like, you know, Frankie and Annette and sort of fun loving teen dramas. And it's certainly far, far from like a JD flick, you know, something that's really kind of yeah. about <clears throat> troublemaking teens. This is actually looking at teenagers and listening to what they have to say. And I feel like that's what was really important for a lot of entertainment at the time. I think The Breakfast Club is one of the most iconic films of the 1980s. I think it's fair to say. Um, I think it's that whole generation of actors, the so-called Brat Pack. There's like this the central sort of the central film in wow. that oeuvre. Um, and I think at its best, it's doing exactly what you're saying. I think that it is, uh, you know, teenagers were, I think, being marketed and being marketed to at the time in a very uh, uh, rigid, condescending way. The idea that you had to fit one of these types, yeah. one of these uh, tropes, and I guess there was an expectation for people to fill that. Um, I know people who have talked about the Breakfast Club as saying that, like, yeah, this is what it was really like. And I, when I was when I was a little kid, and I saw this when I was like uh, like before I was ten, I saw this movie, and I assumed that that's what it would be like to be a teenager, and I was very. I wouldn't say disappointed, but I guess I was mildly surprised <laughs> to find that my high school experience had nothing whatsoever to do with this. Oh, I've, I've never that, seen a movie that captured my high school experience. Yeah, it's I've seen like a couple that come kind of close, but it's always like in a weird genre film. So there's a lot of elements that don't like Scream at the very least captured like the way that like my generation talked Mm. a little bit better in terms of like how we would like filter our perceptions through popular culture in order to make ourselves understood to those around us even if it wasn't specifically horror like that was a moment that i felt kind of seen but the specific archetypes these very suburban conventional and a lot of these conventions go all the way back to the 50s or earlier Mm. the jock the nerd yeah the bully the popular girl, the unpopular girl, as if that's that. Watching it makes me feel as though the film comes across rather naive, but that's my own personal experience. And I know some people actually did go to schools where this was more of the actual codification of the social classes mm-hmm. in, within the high school itself. So for me, this movie never really connected and felt really genuine the way it did for other people, but I appreciate that it's trying to take all of these uh, tropes that it solidified by the 1980s and try to find within them a more complex humanity and show it to people. And I, even though there are bits of the movie that are really quite bad and do and not screw, not age well, are just kind of gross. Okay. But the majority of the film is very genuine and I think mostly works. And so mm-hmm. I like the movie a lot, but I didn't make my list and that's why. That's all okay. I was going to say. All right. That, that, all, yeah. all of that is fair. Yeah. Um, my next pick is also a, a film that's about teen culture. Um, and teen culture specifically in the 1980s. This is another film that I did not see in the 80s. And I think if I had, it would have been one of my favorites. But I just somehow missed it. And I gotta give a special shout out to, and he showed me this movie years ago, but it was Dave White from the Linoleum Knife Podcast <laughs> who found out I had never seen this movie and made me come over to his apartment and we have to watch this, like, uh-huh. today. And so, like, we watched The Legend of Billie Jean. Oh, I've still never seen The Legend of Billie Jean. 
I adore The Legend of Billie Jean very, 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 very much. Uh, this is a movie directed by Matthew Robbins, who had an interesting career. Uh, he directed the movie Dragon Slayer. He co-wrote the movies Mimic and Crimson Peak with Guillermo del Toro. Uh, he he worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Jaws. Like, what a, what a fascinating career Matthew Robbins has had. And he directed this movie, which is about uh, Teen Rebellion. Uh-huh. It stars Helen Slater, who's probably best known as Supergirl. Uh, and uh, she and her younger brother, played by a very young Christian Slater, are poor kids who are being bullied by the wealthier kids in their town. And while they're being bullied, they like destroy Christian Slater's scooter. So Billy Jean goes to his father and says, "Hey, your kid beat up my younger brother and broke a scooter, and uh, we, we we'd like you to pay for it. It costs it costs six hundred dollars. Would you please?" Give us the $600 because your kid messed this up. And the dad is so completely full of sexism and privilege that not only does he, like, not give it to her, but he actually, like, tries to, like, assault her and it's really messed up. And so she and her brother end up on the run accused of crimes that they did not commit because they're easy scapegoats for rich assholes. And... As the movie keeps going, the situation escalates until there's, like, a nationwide manhunt for them. And in order to finally find some way out of this horrible situation, Billie Jean realizes that she needs to actually, like, do what people do in the 80s, and that's become, like, a pop sensation. (laughs) So she, like, gets herself, like, a cool haircut, and she, like, goes on television, and she gives an awesome speech about how, come on, man, we just want... We're, we, we just want things to be fair, right? And this whole, like, the big rallying cry is, fair is fair, which is incredibly naive. But also, yes, it should be fair, shouldn't it? So she teams up with, like, Keith Gordon, and there's, like, car chases, and it's absolutely wild. And it concludes, ultimately, in the end, without going to specifics, with the realization that the commodity she has turned herself into has gotten way out of hand and is completely now divorced from any sort of symbolic meaning, to the extent that the guy who attacked her and sent this whole thing in motion is now profiting off her t-shirts. <laughs> so it's actually, like, it's it's blunt, and it's yeah, incredibly of its yeah. time, but, like, it's actually, like, pretty thoughtful about the way youth culture is actually really important and significant and they have genuine grievances against the world that is exploiting them Hmm. and that using those same tools to fight back makes sense but also has a downside and ends up feeding into that system which is something that i think is a lot of the 1980s you know teen stories teen culture teen music teen movies teen television was really starting to drive the culture in a way that it never had before and well, uh, this again, movie is not not yeah. since the 1950s when the whole idea of a, a teenager as like a separate demographic became a thing. I agree, and I think the 50s is when this got set in motion. But I think in the 80s they had more power than ever. I think they were really not just like a part of the popular culture, but they were the popular culture, and people started trying to see what are teens into because that's all that's important right now. Mm. And I think Legend of Billie Jean was something that was trying to acknowledge that at the time and comment on it and actually had something to say. It's not particularly nuanced because it was right in the thick of it. But I think it's actually a really underappreciated uh, youth culture, you know, um, teen rebellion film okay. of the era. And if you've only ever seen Supergirl, 
there was more to Helen Slater. She's quite good in this movie. Like, <laughs> Supergirl did no one any favor. Even Faye Dunaway didn't come out of that movie unscathed. Like, mm-hmm. it's... That movie's rough. But, like, she's she's quite good in this movie. And I like this movie a lot. Okay. What's your next pick? Um, well, I, I have a, another film that sort of is, is a, a teen uh, throwback to the 1950s. But this is just a straight-up, honest-to-goodness J.D. flick. It's mm. from the director of other uh, notable... Uh, films of their era like roller boogie uh <laughs> this is from the director of commando uh, oh my god it's from the director of a, a movie you and i got to interview the cast of poseidon rex yeah uh i'm talking about uh, mark l lester and mark l lester in 1982 directed a film called class of 1984 and oh my god! I haven't seen this movie since the '80s. I barely remember it now. I think about it. This is a, this is a rough one uh, because youth culture wasn't just about being misunderstood and wanting to be heard or being exploited or really trying to get into culture. Uh, a big part of youth culture, especially in the 1980s, especially in Reagan's America, was about destroying it. It was about fucking anarchy. There was so much to be pissed off about that sometimes your only recourse was, let's just burn it all to the ground. And that's what the whole punk rock movement was about. So uh, as sort of an exemplar of a, a dramatic film about the punk movement, I think it's pretty best exemplified in something like Class of 1984. It's about these nihilistic teens who are... Almost in like a an over the top after school special like John Waters sort of way, terrible. Like they are uh not only are they just troublemakers at school, but they're also dealing drugs and you know, r- running their own uh they're they're all pimps and they're running their own sex work rings. Uh there's a scene early in the movie where the the main bad guy who's played by uh, Timothy Van Patten is sitting in his Ooh. lair and all these people are around kind of taking drugs and saying yeah we're going to smash stuff at the punk show and sell drugs and a woman comes in and says yeah hey could I be a crack whore it's like <laughs> like that's an actual Jesus. line of dialogue yeah it's it's really wow. rough stuff and um uh, so I I this this one really takes a lot of horrendous glee in that that sense of nihilistic destruction, and of course, eventually it's about how you know how awful these people are and how they'll eventually get their comeuppance, and how difficult it is to fight this onslaught of decay that's under underneath a lot of American culture at the time. The public school systems are just broken, and hmm. it, they're overrun by gangs and is a JD flick in that it's trying to show, oh, well, these are the bad people and here's how to take care of it. But for a lot of it, it's just, it's just death and destruction and, and horror. <laughs> it's, it's really, really dark. Um, uh, and yeah, it ends with somebody dying and a corpse falling in front of an entire crowd and nobody gets charged at the end because they can't find any evidence. Like that's the way this movie kind of ends. Um, oh my God. Uh, it, it doesn't have like the iconic punk, soundtrack that that i kind of wish it did uh, it's not like repo man where repo man the soundtrack was big enough mm. business that it actually warranted a re-release of that movie when repo man came right. out it, it kind of tanked but the the soundtrack record did so well that it actually got a re-release and that's when it, it was discovered um, that's the only sort of thing going against class of 1984 is that i wish there was just this stacked punk rock soundtrack like and here's like a bunch of songs by x and and uh, uh, and the Ramones and other like LA, you know, punk punk bands of the time, uh, yeah. but yeah, it, it this one really underlines a lot of just violence and horror 
taking something simple like a 1950s JD film and taking it to some sort of uh, unpleasant extreme. And in fact, it's so unpleasant and so melodramatic that it becomes almost a new thing entirely. It becomes mm-hmm. this entity that is completely about its violence and its nihilism to the point where you're kind of on the wavelength of the movie's uh, JDs more than you are on the wavelength of the people trying to fight them. You know, what's weird about this movie, and again, I barely remember watching this movie, yeah, but... It, it's, just, it's just a vulgar film, but, you know, in, in, in yeah. an appealing way. What I, but what's, the thing that always fascinates me about Class of 1984 is that, you know, Class of 1984, it's a, it's a film that's very much a scare film in a lot of ways about, like, what's going on with the punk kids right now wow. and how dangerous and how strange they are. And when it came time to make a sequel... They didn't do, like, Class of 1986. They did the Class of 1999, and they made it a sci-fi movie about robot teachers who were, like, ex-military androids who then attacked the students. Well, consider here, here's the difference between uh, 84 and 99. Uh, 84 uh-huh. was communicating to the young audience, the teens, that you want to destroy everything, right? The, the system itself is broken, and it's it's worthy of destruction. 1999, the kids were a little bit better behaved, it wasn't the kids that were the bad thing. The system was actually the thing corrupting. So it was the teachers now that were the villains. And the teachers were, in that case, uh, because this is the ni- uh, 1999, uh, they were robots who were instigating like corporal punishment and could more effectively keep the kids in line. Well, I guess that's my point, is that like the sequel... First off, the fact that they made it like such a broad sci-fi sequel to a movie that is ostensibly set in the real world is hilarious to me. But also, uh, like, it goes from sort of like, oh, no, these these kids to, oh, no, save the kids. Like, you know, just the, the perspective changed dramatically. And I yeah, always yeah. find it amusing when the sequel completely changes course immediately. Yeah. You know? Um, but that's an awesome pick. Uh, my next pick is also about youth culture and how youth culture is, although ostensibly at the time, exciting and new and cool... Uh, is, from the perspective of, like, an adult, absolutely terrifying, and all of these people should be in jail. I'm talking <laughs> about Revenge of the Nerds. Ooh, yeah. And the, Revenge of the Nerds is a movie that was incredibly popular at its time. It spawned a whole franchise, and it was, for a while, unironically considered a minor comedy classic. And then mm. people with different sensitivity standards started watching it, and they realized, this movie is intensely fucked up. And the heroes of this movie are as bad or worse than the villains. And that is true. And that is not something where it's just like, oh, we're reading too much Mm. into it. No. The nerds commit horrifying crimes Uh, in this movie, mostly against women. Yeah. What they do to get revenge on, like, the jocks is, like, playful and fun. Mm. And the kinds of outsiders they are, for a while... Are, are kind of playful and fun. They're they're weird and they're eccentric and they're kind of hard to get along with, but you, you like these weirdos. Uh, they are pranked by, uh, like, the, the popular sorority on campus, and their revenge on the sorority girls is is horrendous it, it's yeah they, it's just sexual they, assault is what it is they, they break into their house they like chase them around it's really terrifying they, and violent they go on they while, put video cameras inside of their yeah. house in order to watch them like undressing which is truly grotesque and then later on there is an actual instance in which one of the nerds 
uh, disguises one of the jocks has a, girl, a girlfriend is like the most popular girl in school he's going around at an event and he's dressed like Darth Vader and one of the nerds dresses like Darth Vader and while the girlfriend thinks she's thinks the nerd is her boyfriend she doesn't realize that it's the nerd and that's fucking horrifying yeah, where that story yeah. goes that is not acceptable in any capacity whatsoever and the movie treats it like it's light like uh, like like the victim of that situation learned a valuable lesson that day as if that isn't absolutely horrible. The reason why I picked this movie mm. isn't the obvious reason where, like, you know, nerd culture was so popular at the time and, like, people were starting to, like, really turn around. The reason why I picked this movie is I was looking back at the 1980s and I was realizing that this was a time when nerd culture was starting to take hold of the stuff nerds were into, computers, sci-fi... They were starting to become bigger parts of popular culture and indeed mass culture and starting to control major parts of the media. And yet, when nerds took over, uh, they were still sexist. <laughs> yeah, look, like look they at, were still um... they didn't they didn't bring in Usher in a wave of utopia. There's actually like a lot of other horrible shit. Uh-huh. That nerd culture ended up perpetuating that made things really, really bad and laid to, made, led to shit like Gamergate. Yeah, like yeah. this, it's there's a direct line that you can draw between Revenge of the Nerds saying it's okay because nerds are a put upon group for them to strike back in anger and violence and sexism uh, because they feel so put upon. To today when people or it, it, it it's fucking horrifying but it feels so 80s doesn't it <laughs> well I, what i see is um you can d- also trace that line back a little bit further to uh something like animal house you know films of the 1970s oh, yeah. those those oh, yeah. that national totally. lampoon snobs versus slobs thing and uh the, the nerds in revenge of the nerds uh, okay, nerd culture, yada, yada, yada. What we have is just another snobs versus slobs comedy. The nerds are the slobs in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there there is a line leading straight from <coughs> Revenge of the Nerds to 4chan. And I feel like, and this, this is something I noticed happening at the time, and I commented on it incessantly, but when nerds ascended, when they mm-hmm. met sort of the ascendancy and, and comic book entertainments became very, very popular and what was pre in a previous generation kind of outsider nerd stuff became the mainstream. Mm-hmm. The nerds had won. They got what they wanted. Everything got mainstream approval. But they carried with them a chip on their shoulder. They, yeah. they went into every conversation assuming that people really hated what they were into and they were ready to start fights about it, even though it was already making millions of dollars. It was the most popular thing in the world. And yeah. as such, it, it led to this weird thing that we're, that's still going on today. People who don't even remember that earlier time still have inherited that chip on their shoulder and they're yeah, willing like, to Oh, start... you just don't like superhero movies, yeah, that kind like, of vibe. It's sort of like, as no, if... everyone likes them. Yeah, it's like... That's oh. the whole point. <laughs> Why are you mad? People are like, getting we're not going to all like them equally. Wait, what do you, what? And people are now like starting fights with, of all people like <clears throat> fucking Martin Scorsese over the fact yeah. that he doesn't like these things as if they still need defense as if they're, they're still re- ready, to, ready to get in front of these things with a shield. Like when they're the giant monsters that's eating everything. Like imagine revenge of the nerds, the movie and the, but the movie after the nerds win at the end and they are accepted and everyone's like, yeah, it's cool to be a nerd. Imagine if the movie kept going and the nerds now at the top of the social strata still kept getting revenge. Mm-hmm. 
like they still kept hurting people like they still kept acting like selfish assholes and 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 being very cruel to women and like and then but then that's just what happened yeah that that whole this whole notion of uh of defensiveness that being a nerd makes you an outsider is something a lot of people internalized and yeah, like you said, it's it's putting them in this perpetual revenge state, and that's what 4chan is made of. That's what the whole incel, uh, I don't even want to call it movements, just mindset is made of. This yeah. idea that women are to blame and uh, popular people are to blame, so we have to sort of blame them and be as horrible as we can as an mm. act of retaliation. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's yeah. led to this really horrendous culture that we're we're still living through today. Yeah, so, like, Revenge of the Nerds, there's a couple of scenes that we can, like, the Electronica performance is kind of, like, amusing in a vacuum, but, mm-hmm. like, the ma- majority of the film is actually really gross and toxic, and I feel like, I, I don't like this movie. I don't think it's a good movie. Yeah, there, but there's some, some I things... think it's very indicative of something that was going on in the 80s that is filtered through to today very yeah. cleanly. In, Not clearly, very clearly. Yeah, sorry. In, in terms of comedy, I think, like I said, there there are elements that you, I can see why people would be drawn to it. Still, uh, I I do think some of the characters are very appealing. Um, uh, you know, I I do think this notion that they are these this kind of outsider thing at this co- college is kind of interesting. What really bothers me about Revenge of the Nerds is it's about college. Mm-hmm. And there is not a single word spoken ever about study or going to class. Yeah. Like these characters are supposed to be really, really smart and mm-hmm. they don't ever go to class or study or reveal that they're smart in any kind of way. They're just kind of weirdos and outsiders. If you're going to go to an eighties film that is about nerds and is actually very positive about nerd culture and doesn't have any of the toxicity, you go to a film like real genius yeah. Well, actually, it's got a little, but it's it's much more controlled, I think. And and that movie is actually features studying, which I do yeah, appreciate. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it takes place at a college, but it's about their college projects and studying and what it feels like to burn out and how important it is to balance study yeah. with play, but also to keep on studying. Uh, it's yeah, also think, way think, funnier. It is way funnier. I would actually, of all like the nineteen eighties like college comedies, that whole like. Everything from, like, Animal House to PCU, which is, you know, 70s to 90s, but the majority were in the 80s. I feel like Real Genius is probably aged the best. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's definitely still very, very funny, and I would recommend it. Um, yeah. Well, uh, my next pick is uh, also about uh, young people, in this Ooh. case teenagers, also doing irresponsible things. Uh, more? Only... We just had Class of 84 and Revenge of the Nerds. How many more times could they have possibly done this in the 80s? Uh, I, I don't know. You'd think that, like, the youth were finding their own voice. Uh, in the <laughs> case of this movie, though, the youth are actually finding their own voice in service of a very irresponsible American ideal that was, like, hanging over everything in the 1980s. And I'm talking about the John Milius film Red Dawn. Oh, I was wondering uh, if this would come up. Yeah, um... Fear of the commies, like the whole uh, Cold War thing was really coming to a head in the 1980s. Uh, There was a constant threat of nuclear annihilation. I feel like um, most of the media you find from the 1980s goes into that pretty deep. Uh, It's just sort of hanging in the background of a lot. Uh, It's one of the the things that I like about... uh, uh, 
it's actually I, I really like the comic of Watchmen because that takes mm. place in the 1980s, but it takes place in this alternate version of the 80s where Nixon was still president and everything was like was just as conservative as it seemed. And uh, there's this constant threat of, yeah, like this threat of nuclear annihilation that the, the Russians have the bomb and America has the bomb and who's going to who's going to pull the trigger first. And it was Gorbachev versus Reagan and. Uh, Red Dawn came along in 1984 as this incredibly, like, morally irresponsible myth about how this little tiny town in, where is it? Is it, it's in, um... Oh, it's, it's in, it's, oh, is it like it's in, it's, in, it's like, no, I think it's in, like, Colorado, but it's, it's like in, in this little mountain town. Yeah, I'll and, look it up just to be sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and it plays into this, like a very palpable fear some people have that no matter where they live in the United States, their town is going to be invaded by the enemy. This was, you saw this a lot at post nine 11 and you saw this a lot in the 1980s. So here's a movie that plays to that fantasy in this. It is town. indeed in Colorado. It is in, it's Colorado. in Colorado. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, in this town in Colorado, just a little ordinary town, uh, very, very white, plain Rockwell esque kind of suburb. Uh, World War Three begins there, uh, <laughs> because the Russians invade. Like we, there are paratroopers, and all these soldiers start to infiltrate, and they they're gonna take over this town. Why are, why have they chosen this town? Doesn't matter. It really well, they, doesn't matter. They, they, I think uh, they take over like most of the country. Really, it is just we're focusing on hmm. this town. It's not like they decided we're well, right smack dab in the middle of the U.S. We're only gonna hmm. take over Calumet, Colorado. I think there's. The whole idea is, like, America becomes occupied. I, I suppose so, but that we're focusing on this town means that the people who live in the, those towns need to be ready. Yeah. And wouldn't you know it, uh, Patrick Swayze and C. Thomas Howell and Charlie Sheen and Leah Thompson and Jennifer Grey, all of these, like, uh, prolific 1980s actors, I guess, uh, decide to band together. Uh, with just sort of their limited resources and fight back using guerrilla warfare. And wouldn't you know it, they fight off the Ruskies. They do it. Um, This is a really irresponsible kind of military might fantasy where... It's a survivalist fantasy. Mm-hmm. You you look to some a character like Burt Gummer from Tremors. Why was he hoarding all of those guns? Because he knows the commies are going to invade one day. Why does any survivalist collect about a lot of guns? Because they're afraid the commies might invade. And this is a movie that makes that fantasy seem very real. Yeah. And seeing this as a mainstream feature <clears throat> film just proves how prolific that fantasy was. How much of a conservative mindset a movie like Red Dawn was speaking to and how many people ate it up. It was a big, big hit. And mm-hmm. uh, in fact, it was even remade um, kind of really recently. badly, really badly. Re- well, really badly because this is clearly, this is an eighties film. This is a film of its time. This is about the, the communist threat of the, of 1984. It when they tried to remake it, I think they tried to turn the, the bad guys into North Koreans. Well, what happened was in the remake, I think it was originally going to be China, and I think they filmed it as China, and then they were like, oh, wait, we want to try to market this film to China because it's like the second biggest, you know, uh, audience uh, uh-huh. in the world for for, for movies. Uh, and so they had hastily, like, painted over various flags to make it North Korea. And the the absurd thing, on top of the fact that that's this is just not how war is done today, but uh-huh. on top of all that, 
North Korea does not have let, screw the resources, the manpower mm-hmm. to occupy <laughs> the entire United States. Like this is an outdated fantasy because at the time it seemed like only Russia could conceivably do this. This is one mm-hmm. of the reasons why people were worried about the Cuban Missile Crisis was because, well, if they have like resources and a place to get backup and armaments and stuff closer to America, that would make war against the Russians more plausible because they don't have to cross over an entire ocean in order to get here. Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of movies in the 80s were about this sort of vague threat of nuclear annihilation. The idea that a bunch of people are going to press a couple of buttons and it's going to lead to uh, the entire world blowing up and no shots will actually need to be fired except for pressing those buttons. A movie I very nearly put on my list and decided just decided that there were other films to focus on uh-huh. was a film called War Games, which is a really oh, okay. good movie. I think Red Dawn is an interesting movie and certainly a very exciting movie, but I wouldn't call it a good one per se. Whereas no, War fact, Games, I kind of hate Red Dawn. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not a huge fan, but it's very, very much of its time. It's a great pick. Um, War Games stars Matthew Broderick as a video game enthusiast who hacks into what he thinks is a video game company to play their new online games or their new PC games. And he plays a game called uh, Thermonuclear War, or Global Thermonuclear War, and uh, thinking that it's some kind of like military uh, real-time strategy game, not realizing that he has actually just started a nuclear war. Uh, And it's it's a great movie. Like, it holds up really, really good. Uh, But... uh, the idea was all of the earth will be burned in fire and then the people who survive, because of course there will be people who survive, will be in Mad Max. And that was the general fantasy we all had. What Red Dawn said is, we're going to do exactly what something like the Road Warrior did. We're going to take this to its logical extreme and just say, what if everything we're terrified of happens? But instead of just mm. nuclear war, and I think in Red Dawn they say that like the coastal elite cities have been burned in radioactive fire, like Washington, D.C. and L.A. and stuff. But... The, the middle America, you know, where the real Americans live, uh, that's where it's going to be a ground war. And it's what's the other thing that's weird about this is that the only real analog in American culture, I think, for this particular story, besides the American Revolution, per se, uh, is actually if you reverse the roles in Vietnam. Because a lot of the guerrilla mm-hmm. warfare that the Wolverines, you know, the, the high school football team who becomes the, the heroes of America... In Red Dawn, a lot of those guerrilla warfare tactics are basically what happens when Americans came to Vietnam, and it's very mm. ironic if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't. I don't know if John Milius was. I, he's a smart guy. Like I, I've, I've known that he's made intelligent cinema. So like I, I'm sure he thought mm. of it, but I don't think he cared. I think he was just creating this like the ultimate scare film, in a way. Yeah. It's weird yeah. Film. It's a weird it's movie a, in a lot of ways. It, it it's a scare film, but it, it's I think it was one of those scare films that became sort of accepted as fact after a while. It's like no, this this is exactly what it what it's going to look like. And and yeah, to your point, you said that this is not uh, one of this is not Los Angeles. It's not San Francisco being bombed. This is what you called real America, and yeah. that's also and part of this myth. Yeah. That, yeah, no, that, that's also part of this myth, though, that there is uh, yeah. a sort of a, a smaller, mostly working class, uh, it's always white, you'll notice that, mm. uh, version of an American city that represents America more uh, honestly or accurately than uh, a large city. <clears throat> like, mm-hmm. it's all America, you guys. Everybody has co- different concerns. Let's just address them all. And, uh, it, it it just sort of uh, means that 
the filmmakers are trying to depict this as like sort of the, the real world when nothing could be further from the truth. So yeah, I kind of hate Red Dawn, but I also think it represents a lot of what America was obsessed with in the 1980s. No, I agree. I think it's an important film, but good might be an exaggeration. Um, mm. The last film in my list uh, that has a sort of a young people focus, like, I guess that's not strictly true, but the one that's really about like a youth experience specifically is hmm. a film that does it in a really roundabout way. Whereas, um, you know, something like Breakin and the legend of Billie Jean and even Red Dawn to a weird extent are about very like middle-class or, uh, you know, or not, uh, you know, people trying to make it in a world that is designed not to work for them. There's a movie hmm. that I love and I genuinely love this movie that approaches a sort of a youth experience from a very different angle. And it's from the perspective of being rich and finding that sort of delightfully charming. Like they're out of touch, but they're really kind of sweet if you get to know those rich people. And I'm speaking, of course, about Troop Beverly Hills. Oh, <laughs> okay. William, did you include Troop Beverly Hills because it represents the 80s? Or do you include Troop Beverly Hills because it's one of your favorite movies? It can be both. It can be both. And I love True Beverly Hills to pieces, but one of the reasons why I love it is it's such an odd duck. There mm. really aren't a lot of films. Normally, in most um, uh, uh, conventional American mainstream cinema, the characters in the film who are rich, privileged, completely out of touch, are portrayed as either villains mm. or, at the very least, uh, you know... Margaret uh, Dumont. They're Margaret Dumont, or or they're like the family in uh, My Man Godfrey. You know, they're like they're they're not smart people, and they need real people to sort of help them along because they're so completely out of touch with everything. It's it's a little sad. Mm. Um, but they gotta remember that the '80s. While we've picked a lot of films, and I have at least one more on my list that is also very very critical of of class and and sort of caste disparity. Um, they did celebrate affluence. This was a time when people wanted to be rich. Everyone wants to be rich. Maybe like to be rich was something that was like considered a noble goal. And mm. people, you know, we, we criticize yuppies. Wall Street criticizes yuppies, but everyone wanted to be one. And so here's a movie that is actually, it's very sweet actually. And it's about people who are out of touch with what we would consider reality because they're so rich and because they live in such a strange community. Uh, who are actually left feeling out of touch and try to find some way to turn their bizarre circumstances into a sense of their own community, but in a somewhat positive way. If you've never well, seen it's it... Trying to, yeah. uh, it's trying to take the most privileged people in the world and finding a group within them that can still function dramatically as underdogs. Yeah, and it kind of works, actually, in a weird way. So, True Beverly Hills stars uh, Shelley Long, wonderful Shelley Long, uh, as uh, a, a woman who uh, is essentially uh, what we would call a trophy wife. Uh, her husband, played by Craig Nelson, uh, is like a rich... Um, I, th I think he sells mufflers or cars or something. He's rich. They married when they were young, and um, they're they're getting a divorce. They're not happy with each other anymore, and largely because, in his eyes, he sees that she has lost all ambition and is perfectly happy to just go shopping all day, uh, mm. whereas she feels that he has completely abandoned her because of work, whatever. That's, that's sort of background stuff. More divorce is sort of a central backdrop for 80s movies. Um, 
Shelley Long decides to prove him wrong that she does have depth and she is willing to contribute uh, by becoming her daughter's new Girl Scout leader. Although it's they couldn't use Girl Scouts because that's no, an official name and Girl Scouts doesn't give that out for nothing. So uh, yeah, they call yeah. them Wilderness Girls. Um, Shelley Long is not an outdoorsy type. And indeed, when they try to go camping, things go horribly wrong and they end up camping, in air quotes, in a fancy hotel. And then when they're like, the, the the main scout leader shows up and says, this is not roughing it. And Shelley mm. Long says, are you kidding? One bathroom for 12 girls? <laughs> like, it, they're, they're that out of touch. They have no idea what they're doing. But they finally find a way to turn, to show that their bizarre set of skills, whether it be uh, how to appropriately uh, uh, determine if a cut of a diamond is good, mm. or how to get a good bargain at Versace... Or uh, in one case, because one of the characters is the daughter of, like, a Central American dictator, how to dispel a coup. It's a very strange (laughs) universe that we're visiting, but everyone in it is very likable and charming, and it's very, very much like, you know, rich people are people, too, you know. Um, the costumes in this in this movie give it the upper hand over a lot of other movies I was thinking of picking, because 80s fashion was very distinct. And there's a lot of movies from the... Like, Wall Street, people still wear suits. It's not that different. Every single outfit Shelley Long wears in Troop Beverly Hills is a stunner. Is mm-hmm. absolutely... Like, a, 98% of them could not exist today. No one would believe them. They are an absolutely incredible cavalcade of distinctly 1980s fashions. Well, they and were... that's what sets this over the edge and makes it just extra 80s for me. I, I suppose so. Uh, but, you know, to a point we were making earlier, this is not uh, authentic 80s. That that was actually meant to be kind of cartoonish at the time. True. Uh, th- those were over-the-top designs extrapolated from in 1980s fashion. That's true. But um, a lot of 80s cinema was indeed perpetuating this idea. This is what the 80s is. It's the 80s, but heightened. You would see this in something like Earth Girls are Easy yeah, as well. Yeah. You know, this is not, like, unusual to see. Or, and indeed, uh, MTV was full of fashion like this, people trying to make a broad statement. Mm. Uh, so I think, it, I think, although it doesn't necessarily accurately convey what people were wearing, it accurately shows what fashion extremes were presented in the media. Yeah, so I do think, yeah, it, yeah. I do think it still counts. Um. Okay, True Beverly. It's it's rare that you find uh, movies that present like the, not just rich people, but incredibly rich people as mm. uh, sympathetic. Outside of like yeah. stories of royalty, of course, like you you know get a Shakespeare. Yeah. Those are the royals, or, or, or um, indeed, one, or indeed, like there's like one person in the family who like dreams of like knowing the real world better, and then they are portrayed as more sympathetic than the rest of their family. But yeah, no, the, like the, the actual you get that in like yeah you get that in like Capra movies where you know, Jimmy Stewart's yeah. like oh I lived among the people. I'm rich, well, yes, but I understand. And I think the, the adults in Troop Beverly Hills are all seen as pretty unhappy mm. for one reason or another. Like, their lives aren't all uniformly great. They're just rich. Mm. And I think Troop Beverly Hills, what we see of the adults sort of sort of lends some credibility to that. Where it's like, they're not all just living in this perfect Barbie world. They're actually got their own problems. It's, I, think, I think it works, but yeah, it, it, it is odd. It's a very odd film. Yeah, we're we're used to here here in in the United States. We're used to the the 
the well the view of wealth in film is still something that uh, resides with Frank Capra. And mm-hmm. the idea that uh, wealth is a destructive force, and there are wealthy people, but they need to be honest. Uh, but wealth is going ultimately going to be the thing that corrupts you. The the seeking of money is going to be the thing that corrupts mm-hmm. you. Uh, and as such, movies about noble rich people are still pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like True Beverly Hills is one of them. Uh, this movie came out in the 1990s, but it's one I'm very fond of and I think about a lot. It's called Cold Comfort Farm. It's a John Schlesinger movie with Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, yeah you're which a big is, fan of that. Yeah, I, well, because it's one of the rare instances of a rich person who's a little bit hoity-toity. She's a little bit too neat. She has her little habits. She's a little bit annoying. She's a little bit, uh, a little bit of a know-it-all. Uh, she's the Kate Beckinsale character. Uh, she's sent off uh, uh, to a distant farm of her distant families. Uh, it's, it's the Cold Comfort Farm. And uh, everything there is muddy and miserable. Nobody has any any uh, resources whatsoever. The guy who washes the dishes uses a stick. He can't even bring himself to use a cloth. Uh, and <laughs> you know, they don't know anything. They're just completely miserable. And the movie is about how she uses her money and her... <coughs> sort of, Excuse me cosmopolitan knowledge and wherewithal to improve their lives. And that's the movie. Just being rich and having resources makes your life better. That seems to be the message. And it's incredibly charming and a little bit strange to see uh, from an American perspective. It's a British movie that rich people can actually be good guys. It's, it's really, really um, not seen a lot in the post Capra world, if you will. No, it's an odd duck in a yeah. wide variety of ways, yeah. Uh, what is your next pick? Uh, let's see. I don't have any other movies about sort of yuppies or wealth. Um, I do have one about... Uh, there was a particular craze in the 1980s, and it's still one that uh, we're, we're experiencing iterations of in the present day, but it really exploded. Uh, America had devoted itself to money and wealth, laissez-faire capitalism, uh, we were on the brink of annihilation because of the nuclear war that was definitely going to happen. Uh, we had lost our souls, so we were going to improve our bodies. Uh, so working out became the thing to do in the 1980s. Uh, exercise culture exploded in the 1980s. Uh, fitness clubs, work, you know, we sort of take them for granted now, you know, 24-hour mm. fitness or planet fitness. Those are just regular installations along the... Uh, the highway now but there was a time when those places didn't exist and those places all started opening in the 1980s because of the fitness craze and fitness became not just an obsession with looks but there was also a very uh, very much a status uh, thing about it like those who were rich and well connected could afford to work out they could afford the nice outfits and there was a lot of sex involved uh going to a, a fitness club was tantamount to going to a singles bar. It's just, uh, and there was a whole expose written about it in Rolling Stone, and there was a movie about oh, that expose. No. <laughs> it was James Bridges' film Perfect with oh my goodness. John Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis. It is a disgusting movie. <laughs> I have never really seen hard. all of this film. I have never okay. gotten very far. I've never had to watch all of this film. So I would always like watch like a chunk of it and go, you know what? Not today, perfect. <laughs> Not today. It's one of those movies that is daring critics to make fun of the title. Yeah. yeah. You know, like we're going to call it. It's like when they came up with that movie Loser and someone mm. actually wrote like a print review that was just, yep. Like, yeah. 
Here, oh my well, god! So tell me about Perfect because I've actually never seen all of it, and I can't okay, speak right. to this one in great detail. But I, I, I know exactly. What, I knew you were leading up to Perfect. I was like, he's gonna do it. He's gonna, <laughs> gonna make yes, it perfect. I'm, I'm gonna make it perfect. And yeah, this oh is the movie god. Perfect. Uh, it was directed by James Bridges, uh, and it is about a Rolling Stone reporter. And again, this is another thing that we're still living through movies today, that the main character of your movie is going to be a, like a really well-moneyed journalist, as if that still exists. Ah, uh, good times. Yeah, it was really... It was, so yeah, the idea of a journalist going out and doing this like one story that takes months, like half a year to write one article for a single oh, issue of Rolling Stone. It's and a that's, fantasy. That's, it's and that's enough fantasy. to pay their bills for the whole oh. year. And they get oh. all this money from their publications. Okay, you know, like you know, like in those commercials when they're like making like the perfect whatever, like the perfect Sunday, and they're just drizzling butterscotch <laughs> over it, and you're supposed to go, "Oh, I want that. I'm gonna go to Baskin Robbins after this." That's mm-hmm. it. for everyone who's ever been a writer in the present day. Everything Whitney just described about like being able to write one article over a long period of time and make a living at it is just like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh God, be, oh, that's. That'd good. be nice. You could just like, oh, that's decadent. Make, make like a, a pretty damn good living just writing like two or three articles a year, it seems. Oh. Uh, so that's John Travolta. He is a sign, or I guess he's like sort of probing around uh, the the brand new sort of fitness club. And he, he's the story is how fitness clubs are singles bars of the 80s. And he goes to a gym and he meets the uh, the instructor, the aerobics instructor, and that's Jamie Lee Curtis. And she's mm. very curt and she hates reporters. She was a, like a swimmer and they, uh, some reporters lambasted her when she was a swimmer, so she doesn't trust him anymore. Uh, but eventually he starts to you know, ask her more questions. She begins to open up and they begin to have uh, like a romance, but it's all very fitness based and they do mm. meet at the club a lot. And there's a... a or rather, you probably have seen clips of it out of context, but the clip where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and John Travolta go to bed together and she's constantly talking about how many calories they're going to burn or how your heart rate needs to stay up while you're having sex. Oh, God. Yeah, like oh, that. Oh, God. It's like, it's like I, I, we mentioned it earlier, but uh, like the, the one of the most 80s sex scenes in the history mm. of the 80s is in Ninja 3, The Domination. Oh, when she Lucinda po- Dickey, <laughs> she, she's got a V8. A V8 in the 80s was a, everyone was drinking V8. I didn't know a single person who didn't have a refrigerator with at least one V8 in it. And yeah. V8 is like, is tomato juice. It's not sweetened or anything. It's like, it's like drinking the base of a not very good tomato sauce. <laughs> and Lucinda Dickey's like pouring this on her neck and like ah lick it off my neck mm. and i'd be like oh jeez couldn't you make it pass. something that tastes like, good like i'll, I'll pass like, do you have any crystal pepsi like something <laughs> that would actually like appeal like it's so oh v8 mm. all right anyway i digress very 80s sex scene indeed it sounds yeah like. and and per- perfect really um a lot of, uh, I feel like Perfect was trying to be very frank. It was trying to be very upfront about sex and sexuality and, and you know, the way modern people viewed sex. Uh, and as it feels really naive today, it felt, I imagine it felt pretty daring at the time. Uh, it's important to remember that in sort of like in the mid-1980s and the late 1980s, a lot of the freewheeling sexuality of the 1970s came to a crashing halt because of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, 
AIDS became, you know, AIDS was a crisis, and uh, Ronald Reagan, who was right right on top of that, uh, just sort of yeah, let yeah. just sort of let it go on and let it go on, and you know, conservative politicians felt like it wasn't going to affect them. In fact, they were kind of happy for it to affect. Uh, they they saw it as a a queer uh, thing. Um, in in the early days, in fact, AIDS was called GRID, G R I D, which stood for Gay Related Immunodeficiency. That's how naive people were, and that's how hateful everything was at the time. Uh, and as such, sex became very uh, uh, negotiation heavy in media. All of a sudden, people were constructing a lot more cautionary roadblocks to just sort of falling into bed with a stranger. We still saw that in movies a lot, but that kind of uh, paranoia about STIs started to become very pervasive and really shaped a lot of the way uh, sex was depicted in media. And, and I feel like we started seeing part... sex as some, something that's considered kind of scary yeah, a little bit yeah. more often. Like, I, this is a movie I considered putting on my list, but I didn't, uh, would be Fatal Attraction, which was a gigantic hit in the middle of the 1980s. The mm. idea that here's a guy, he's rich, he's got a wife and a family, and like a lot of rich people who don't really think, or indeed a lot of people, really, mm. just had an affair didn't think much of it it's gonna be not gonna be a big deal right we're just gonna we're gonna sleep together a few times and then it's gonna be over and i'm gonna back to your life and you're gonna go back to your life and oh you actually thought that meant something oh mm. how awkward and oh you really thought that meant oh god oh god please put please put the bunny down like <laughs> and with the older you like when you're when there are some people who watch fatal attraction and see it as like oh my god glenn close is uh is so scary and then you get older and you realize it's like no it's michael douglas's complete like mm. complete lack of consideration for his family is yeah, what dooms yeah. them that's the nightmare and like watch watch fatal attraction again and watch it from glenn close's perspective because mm -hmm. she's actually a really interesting character uh you know for as a scare film for married men she's depicted as like this weird harridan but if you look at it as a woman looking for love and finding it in this other man, her her actions are completely understandable and justified, and she's a very interesting, well, complex person. I, I don't know uh, about well, maybe, entirely maybe understandable and justified. I maybe think not that's justified. an exaggeration, she, but you can see where she's coming from. Violence, but yeah, you, you can you see where she's coming her. from. Like yeah, it, yeah. it makes it. She doesn't feel like a cartoon supervillain. She feels like a natural extension of some real anxieties, and so. Yeah, that movie is that movie has aged rather well. I feel in a lot of ways. So mm. it, it didn't quite make my list, but I thought it was worth an honorable mention since we're talking about how sex and depictions of sex were changed in the eighties. So yeah, all right. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's that's perfect. Um, I, I can't recommend you watch it. It often makes like worst of <laughs> film lists. Uh, it, it it's it's really long. It's actually kind of boring. It's not as insightful as it thinks it is. Uh, John Travolta gives a, a pretty bad performance, quite frankly. Uh, but uh, it's it, it definitely captures what the fitness craze was all about and how views of sex were changing. Uh, it's definitely emblematic of the time. Nice. All right. Uh, so my ne what what should I pick? Okay, I have a list here. I'm mm -hmm. trying to think of if there's a good segue. You know, I don't really have a good segue. But the closest thing I got is there's a movie I wanted to pick that. Is actually kind of about the 80s in a weird way. Okay. Like, it's actually, it's, it's a little self-aware about the 80s. And it's about how the 80s will have a place in the future. There's this idea that the 80s are here to stay. Okay. And that the future will be entirely based 
off of the 80s, which is not entirely wrong. So I want to give a little shout out to Back to the Future Part 2 for getting it right. But Okay, Back to the Future Part 2. Back to the Future Part One, classic movie. Plot doesn't has some problems if you look at it closely, but yeah. like it's a movie that's very much about the obsession that the eighties had with the nineteen fifties, which is very much a real thing. There's something that yeah, people yeah. were very nostalgic for in terms of a lot of aesthetics, a lot of music, a lot of stories that were being told. I almost put Stand by Me, uh, the movie, on this list because of its weird fifties fixation, which is something the eighties had in abundance. Mm-hmm. Back to the Future Part 2 sends us into the future, and what it suggests is that in the future, uh, people will still be obsessed with the 1980s, which is true. Uh, there would also be a lot of things that uh, sort of did come to pass, like the idea that like franchises would never end. Yeah, Jaws, Jaws 19 is playing yeah. at the movie theater in 2015. and They picked the wrong franchise, but you know, with, there are others that are still going, which is nuts. Um, uh it has this the the the, the, hot, the alleyways are filled with laser discs, which is just the funniest <laughs> thing ever. There are eighties nostalgia restaurants, which, by the way, mm. there should be people would go <laughs> to those. It's actually weird that they. Why isn't that an actual attraction at Universal Studios? Cafe the ca- 80s. Cafe eighties. I would go there. I'm kind of that surprised like they a... d- they didn't open a Cafe eighties even prior. The yeah. future sequences in Back to the Future Part Two take place in 2015, and I'm. I feel like that huge wave of 80s nostalgia even predated that. Like, you could put, mm-hmm. could have opened a Cafe 80s as early as, like, 2007, and people would have gone. Yeah, totally. And so, it had this... It, and, and But it had this weird self-awareness to the, the idea that the 80s is being commoditized already. Mm. And we're going to see more and more and more of that over time. And it also still has that obsession with the 50s. The movie still ends up going back to the 1950s, but in going back to the 1950s, in order to prevent the worst aspect of the 1980s from completely taking over the 1980s, which is something that happens when the timeline gets changed, mm. because the 1980s that we see in Back to the Future gets taken over by Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. <laughs> Who? They, all, not, they, also, they also predicted that putting Donald Trump in charge of everything would be the absolute worst thing Possible, and there would be a violence in the streets. That there would be an absolute uh, 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 sort of hmm. capsizing yeah. of any sort of mor- of any sort of public morality, uh, and indeed he would just turn into this bigger and bigger monster. Uh, Back to the Future Part Two. We make fun of the things that it got wrong. There are no hoverboards, which does suck. Hmm. I would like a hoverboard. That would be cool. But and you the, know what? Uh... It got a lot of things right in a weird way. The uh, and the the most uh, the, the the most egregious part of that whole hoverboard thing was, and I found it. I found the video where oh, yeah. Robert Zemeckis was interviewed, and it was in that interview that he kind of just joking around, like in a making of, like behind the scenes thing, said, "Oh yeah, and we found these hoverboards, and we got some from Mattel, but they oh, were taken no. off the market." Like he he's the one who started the rumor that they were real. Oh, that so jerk! When we were kids, we thought they were. We thought that you could get a hoverboard, but some yeah. some kid used one and fell off and and you know, broke his neck, and so now I always they thought were they were just like the... right around the corner, like they were just like some like concept car or something like that okay. that gets into a movie, and like eventually we'll get something that's a little bit more like a little bit more affordable, but we'll get finally get a version of a hoverboard down the line. Hmm. No, never damn happened. No, nope, never happened. Oh, 
assholes. Yeah, the, 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 the rumor we heard is that some kid injured himself and died while using a hoverboard, like during the <laughs> during like the testing phase or whatever that meant. Oh and uh, so they were they were never put on the market. We were all incensed that we could not buy hoverboards. Oh my god. So yeah, Back to the Future, again, the original film is probably the better movie. I would even say that the third film, set in the Wild West, is a better movie. But in terms of like this weird uh, uh, sort of statement piece mm-hmm. about the 1980s themselves and how they are the product of the 1950s and going to lead into a new generation in another 30 years, it's weirdly on the ball. And it's a film that I actually think has aged rather well because of it, even though in many respects it has completely dated because it is so of its time, yeah. but it had something to say about its time. Yeah, so I'll just yeah. leave it there. I think uh, it's it's a well-known film. What do you got next? Uh, that, that's an interesting choice, actually. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm because Back to the Future is made in 85 and it takes place partly in 55. And it, you know, it's literally bridging the gap between the 50s and the 80s. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't really considered that how 1950s the future segments are in that one. It's about sort of uh, Marty settling down and moving into a tract house, all of that stuff. Yeah, and even even things like uh, oh, people uh, it was like um, like paper isn't really a thing anymore in the future, and so right. like, they got like yeah, it's like all these little weird choices. Oh, and uh, news would be instant. That's right. That's another thing that we didn't have in the eighties, but now we got it. Mm. So like, yeah, there it's when you see just how cyclical our cultural memory is. Uh huh. And how, like, we're willing to overlook... People are willing to look a lot of horrible shit that happened in the 80s. Because they like Transformers. Mm -hmm. You know? And people were willing to look a lot of horrible shit that happened in the 50s. Because my three sons seemed, like, pretty pretty utopian to them. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, and this goes to something uh, you've said rather eloquently about uh, how people look to the media of their past... And see that as the real world, whereas the media of the present is political. The, me- mm-hmm. the media of the past was not political. And you pointed out that you're not thinking of when the media wasn't political. You're thinking of a time when you weren't wise enough to recognize mm-hmm. how political your childhood media was. And a lot of the media of the 1980s wasn't apolitical. It was actually fiercely conservative in many ways. Uh, that's fine. You can still enjoy a piece of conservative media if you're not conservative. Uh a lot has been made of the fact that Ghostbusters is actually a very, uh, in a way, pro-business conservative thing, and that, that the bad guy is the EPA kind of spokes to this kind of yeah. right, right-leaning right bent to Ghostbusters. I mean, yes and no, those guys weren't clearly weren't trying to make some sort of conservative polemic. They were just trying to make a snobs versus slobs comedy, and the snobs they just decided were the EPA, almost arbitrarily, I would say. Mm. Uh but the effect is they made something that leans very right. Yeah, exactly. So what do you uh, got next? What's your I, next I have something that relates to Back to the Future Part 2, but I want to save it for the end. Oh, so it's your number one pick. Then. So so I'm going to skip over to, okay. uh, an, and this is another well-known one. It's one that's in the media a lot because the sequel is in theaters. I'm going to talk about Top Gun. Top Gun uh, made my list as well. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad we both picked it, yeah. Yeah, Here, here's the, the most... Uh, notable detail about Top Gun is that we don't know who the bad guys are. <laughs> never find out. They never we say ne- what country they're from. Mm-hmm. They don't have any names. They're just we don't know ch- bad where, guys yeah. in masks. And that's true in the new one as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's one of the more frustrating things about the new one. It's like, okay, we have this 
nation, yeah, this this one country, right? They have nuclear bombs and they're bad guys, and you need to blow up the thing in a country somewhere. Yeah, and we you know, know how it's a like snowy I know like country. and they like most other countries, you know, still have like <clears throat> a really active and well trained like aerial fleet of fighter jet of fighter pilots, you know, mm-hmm. like like they have now. <laughs> Right. You know, like, you know, like they have and like they try to make it like, OK, it's not really political. It's more of like, you know, like a side thing. So like, you know how like drug cartels have like a whole bunch of fighter pilots just on hand <laughs> just in case. No, in case the American military a, comes by. You have to you have to completely make up a cartoon enemy for mm. them. And I like that movie. I like the new movie quite a bit, actually. But it you have to make up a generic supervillain. It's oh. like it's like they're fighting Cobra. Like that's the only way that that movie works. And whereas in the eighties, there was at least a plausible possibility for that kind of conflict. Mm. The the thinking in both of the the Top Gun movies, the one that came out in uh, 80, uh, 86 and the other one that came out just this year, um, it is it's implied that it's Russia in both cases. But they never once say Russia. They never refer to Russia. They never refer to any kind of nicknames or even geography that would betray where it is. All we know is that the target is reachable from an aircraft carrier. That's the yeah. o- only contingency. It could be Which Italy. Which really for doesn't all we narrow know. it down too much if you yeah. think about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I'll just say it's New Zealand because we have no <laughs> we have no beef with New Zealand whatsoever. Okay. Those are the bad guys. Fine. It's, it's, it's New Zealand. It's New they're Zealand. Fighting they're, New Zealand. They're, they're fighting New Zealand in, in Top Gun. Uh, I, I think it's significant that there's no bad guy in Top Gun because this is a a military commercial. It is just yep. a military commercial. It is very pro-military. It's about how uh, naval pilots are just the coolest. And Maverick is just the coolest guy. He breaks a lot of rules. I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, he does actually. I, I I actually watched a video not that long ago. Okay. That actually was like people who were like in like n- naval like law, and they watched oh, okay. Top Gun, and they said that like the, Maverick does some things in this movie that would not only get him like kicked out of the military dishonorably. He does arguably like there's a couple of things he does in this movie that could get him executed. <laughs> wow. Because at the end of the movie. They basically start World War Three, right? And and then they like sort of just like in the middle of like well World War Three started. Hey, let's have a party on the deck. Like, mm. no, you started World War Three. We are still yeah, in Red this, Alert. Th- this <laughs> like, is about this is about how great it is to be in the military and how c- capably executing orders is the ultimate achievement. Mm. Uh, they call him Maverick. He's not a Maverick. He doesn't leave the military. He doesn't do something innovative outside of the military's plan to take care of this in an unconventional way. He just does what he was told very well. Well, uh, he doesn't, use, almost he doesn't no... follow orders specifically. He does. He accomplishes the goal really well yeah. without following the specific orders, which is what gets him in trouble and what ultimately gets his best friend killed. So that oh, oh, towards the end of the movie, the lesson Maverick learns is to conform his best. And to conform to the military is the ultimate personal goal. Well, and I'm, is and to I'm conform arguing, to the military. I'm arguing that he was already kind of conforming. Like, I am. it's like okay, I, some yeah. somebody died. Yeah, well, you know, soldiers do die. That that's something mm-hmm. that happens rather commonly. Uh, 
and I feel like, you know, learning to conform, he didn't really learn any kind of lesson because we catch up with him when he's 59 and Brandon. he's the exact, well, I guess mm, he's 59, but he acts like he's 35 uh, and yeah. he's the exact same character. Like nothing's changed well, for this guy. Th- that's another movie. And we talked, I think we talked about this earlier, uh, where the sequel actually contradicts the original a lot because the original, and you make a good point that he is not as much of a maverick as you might think. He just kind of looks like one when com- like held up next to Iceman. Uh-huh. But like, he's trying to learn to like become a better soldier, to become more of what the military wants him to be, because the military is right. Whereas Maverick is all about how the military needs to conform to be more like Tom Cruise. Not even Maverick. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise specifically. Because that's how they will succeed. The military is good, but they cannot achieve their goals without the singular rule-breaking vision of one super awesome genius. Mm. And if we could all be a little bit more like him, the military would be better. It's the exact opposite message. Yeah. yeah it's really yeah. weird. Uh, th- both both Top Gun films are as slick as they come. The first one was made by Tony Scott, and Tony Scott knew how to uh, film those aerial dogfights in a really exciting way. And they actually got, like, real pilots. There's not a, a lot of... Except when a plane exploded, there were no miniatures. Uh, it, it was all very impressively staged. And then uh, come 2022, um, uh, what's his name? Kosinski. Joseph Kosinski. Uh, Joseph Kosinski. Uh, Try, tried to outdo Tony Scott and do the same sort of thing where he just did everything really authentically. He stayed, he actually put the actors in real jets and had other pilots fly them around so they could get shots of the actors in actual flying planes. And it's cool. It, it, both of the films look amazing. I hate Top Gun. Top Gun is terrible. <laughs> uh, the, the first Top Gun is unabashedly a military ad. It is very, very pro-American military in that 1980s kind of way, where the American military are going to be the things that save us from that nuclear annihilation. And it's trying to stage them as these kinds of this kind of scrappy maverick, when really it is this overwhelming, well-moneyed machine with uh, with aircraft carriers and shit. Like, are we outsiders or do we have all the money? What 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 story are you trying to tell here? Um, they're they're exciting to watch and they're completely empty. And I think they celebrate that emptiness. And golly, if <coughs> if the celebration of military might, the mythologizing of yourself, and uh, you know, don't aren't emblematic of the eighties, then I don't know what is. No, I agree with you entirely. There's a couple of films that I was like. <clears throat> debating putting on my list that kind of hovered around similar ideas, similar hmm. ideas of American military might, well, but filtered through our fantasy of individual exceptionalism. Yeah, there you uh, go. And there, there were films like, I, I almost put Commando on my list, for Com- example. Commando That's was, yeah, almost on mine as well. <clears throat> I came, the, the, probably the closest, like the film that I was just like, I literally just pulled off the list just before I was like, okay, I don't need that and Top Gun, hmm. was Invasion USA. <laughs> which yeah, is that's, awesome uh, by the way it's imagine imagine uh red dawn but instead of like a whole group of teenagers it's just chuck norris like it's kind of kind of fucking amazing actually i like yeah. that movie a lot it, totally irresponsible but very fun if, if um, you're gonna go for like a, an irresponsible violent american explosion fantasy uh yeah go for something like commando or invasion usa something that's just unapologetic about how violent it wants to be don't 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 watch Red Dawn. Red Dawn doesn't yeah. have some have teenagers killing soldiers by 
hand throwing rotary blades at people. You know, go go to Commando. It's a lot more fun. Well, because to watch. because Commando and, and Invasion USA and if and other films of their ilk, yeah, uh, maybe to a lesser extent the Rambo sequels because I feel like they kind of missed the point of the original. But they're so over the top that you're not encouraged to take them seriously. And now, granted, their whole vibe mm-hmm. comes across. And, again, if you just watch Commando, you're not going to pick up this whole idea of, like, yeah, American awesome, soldier good, man better than not man, like all that kind of... Uh-huh. But when you see it as a piece, and you realize just how much of the media, how many of the cartoons you're watching, the commercials you're watching, what's in the news, what the president is saying how much they all come together and create this large mosaic that frames that picture, mm-hmm. it, it becomes a bigger deal. Whereas in Top Gun, it's all right there because it is unabashedly, unashamedly, very directly a military recruitment ad to the extent that outside of theaters, there were military recruitment stations. Yeah, because yeah. they knew that right after seeing Top Gun, you would be like, shit, I want to do that. I'll, and I'm then you just sign up because you're... A, because you're a stupid 18-year-old and you don't know any better. And it's like, okay, boom. And granted, and, I'm, and listen, I come from a military family. I do not think that joining the military is inherently a bad thing. But being <laughs> tricked into it through propaganda is not the right way to go. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, certainly little, not going to help anybody. So, A little bit um, of honesty as to what the military does and what they can offer you is going yeah. to be a better approach than showing somebody Top Gun and telling them that's what it's like. It, it's, it's really condescending and kind of fucked up. Um the other thing I like about Top Gun, there's actually other the other things that are very 80s about Top Gun. Giorgio Moroder produced the soundtrack, and the soundtrack is quintessentially 80s. Mm. Uh, and it's a really great soundtrack. I like the soundtrack a lot. And it, but it, there's a lot of, like, sort of unusual choices. There's the really awesome, like, but also a lot of, like, kind of dreamy romance numbers, too. Like, it's got a very distinct vibe. Mm. Um, the other thing that is very quintessentially 80s about this movie is... Uh, unexplored uh homoerotic undertones um where there, it, there's it, it's in it's, it's in the movie but a, it's a not the, really directly addressed in any way yeah well what what happened is um there's a lot of talk about the male gaze in in yeah. uh, in movies that is g-a-z-e <laughs> yeah uh and that is the male uh, the male sexual perspective exactly um and the, and, we, of... and the assumption when we say that in that that was written when the assumption was the male perspective, the male gaze, uh, was heterosexual in nature. Uh, exactly. The the yeah. notion that uh, the, the male gaze refers to, uh, because the film industry and the arts in general uh, have notoriously been uh, male-dominated, they've been very sexist spaces, especially the uh, American film industry, a lot of straight white men have been making the movies, and... The idea is many of them couldn't make films without escaping that those aspects of themselves. They are straight and they are white and they are male. And as such, whenever they put a woman in their film, they put a woman that looks attractive to them, assuming that the audience would find that same woman attractive in the same way. They're not thinking of the female audience or what the woman might no. want to look at. They're, they're, when, and they're choosing different camera angles yeah. to accentuate aspects of femininity that they find mm. attractive, whether they're doing that consciously or not. And your screenwriters Whereas they're not are necessarily sexualizing them way, yeah. the men, exactly. Yeah, so. Uh, so, and, and the screenwriters are writing them that way, and the costume designers are dressing them that way, because it's all run by straight men who are sexualizing these people. And when you get to something like Top Gun, they do the same thing with the male body. And you could say that this is either a, uh, is this a straight female gaze or is this a gay male gaze? And I would argue 
mm-hmm. that these sort of shirtless, greasy uh, guys playing volleyball is also part of the male gaze because these were constructed in a way of a straight male assuming what a woman would want to see, not what a woman would put in, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, it comes across as... We call it homoerotic because we're still assuming that the audience is male who's viewing this. And now that we're filming men the same way that we would film a woman from the male gaze perspective. They are shirtless and we're seeing a lot of their skin and we're sort of ogling their physique. Uh, This is clearly not a female gaze movie. This Mm. is uh, an assumption of what a a straight female might want to see. Uh, so I feel like uh, I think there's part of that I do think there's also an element of again this, we're trying to sell you something here we're trying to sell you the idea of this macho lifestyle is for you mm-hmm. isn't it like this is what you would want to have right and I think that there's an element of that which is to say and it might be very self-oriented like if you join this you too will be completely cut and playing shirtless volleyball ball while mm-hmm. people stare at you People start um, you, but and also you'll, you'll be a... surrounded by other men who are just as, uh, in a in a very uh, sort of Greek god kind of way, uh, mm. these sort of perfect specimens of masculine physicality. Uh, you will be in that locker room, and you will smell the musk, uh, <laughs> and indeed, all of your inter- interpersonal conflicts will be intense and and often very physical. And I think that there is an element of that which is. Again, I, I think it's I think it's undertones. I don't think it's it's never explicitly about that. Yeah. But I think there's an element in there where they're talking about masculine closeness in a way that, if you want to view it through a, uh, a through a queer lens, it's hmm. all there. And I don't think it's yeah. I don't yeah. think it's right to completely like sort of shy away from that and say that's not there. It is there. But it, it's because it is it's under unexplored or perhaps it's slightly unintentional. Uh, there's just this element of macho sexuality where the women in the movie, the only female character besides like Meg Ryan who's in like one and a half scenes, uh, is not in it very much. Mm-hmm. And she's off to the side of this group. And it's the it's it's not necessarily what we're idealizing here. What we're idealizing is the locker room. And I think that's yeah, a that, very that particular kind of... point. I think Tony Scott. I think Tony Scott just thinks everything is sexy. And I think if you look at his yeah. filmography, it, it kind of bears out. He wants everything to look awesome <laughs> constantly. And when you have a, a story that is explicitly about male testosterone, mm. other other aspects are going to come out. And I don't think Tony Scott was quite self aware enough in order to lean into that. But I think it's there. And I think there are a lot of other eighties. Uh, movies that have that element as well uh, that uh, I think it's worth I think it's worth including on the list in some form okay um, so that was my number three as well I might as well just ask for your number two mm. or uh, your second to last pick anyway my, my second to last pick uh, if, if you'll permit me is a tie uh, ooh I don't know because I, I wanted to um, cover a whole subsect of the 1980s that we haven't even talked about yet and that's metal we haven't gone into yeah. metal yet and there are two films that are really two documentary films that are really emblematic of uh, metal culture at the time the first one is uh, the 17 minute documentary short heavy metal parking lot uh, okay. which is uh, you can watch this on like night flight if you're hip enough to have night flight which is uh, the best streaming service out there 
But uh, the filmmakers went to a parking lot where there was a tailgate party prior to a Judas Priest concert in 1986 in Maryland. And they just talked to the metalheads. And the metalheads just sort of talked about being fans of metal and how awesome metal was. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they talked about their the tour bus and their, their favorite bands and... Uh, how great Judas Priest was and what was the ethos of metal. And the ethos of metal was very much of the 1980s. It was all about excess. Uh, there's this idea that, you know, the punkers got it all wrong, man. They don't want to destroy the world. We kind of want to take over the world with our, you know, hedonism. That was a big part of metal, especially the hair metal part of it. It was all about uh, destruction, Satanism, but also... Uh, there's also this angle of, like, money and glamour to it. Like, heavy metal was this weird uh, collision between glam rock and, like, really rough punk. Like, somehow those two things, which are completely opposed to each other, mashed into each other and created this really weird uh, subsect of fans that kind of took over the 1980s for a long time. And I remember seeing a lot of metal guys growing up. Uh, just because those were the circles I ran in. I knew a lot of metal No, my people. brother was a big metalhead, actually. Yeah. I, 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 I inherited a lot of Iron Maiden t-shirts when he moved out. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it, it was this weird mixture of wanting a lot of money and power, but also complete nihilism. Like, both of those things together. Somehow those mixed together in, in, in the ethos of metal. And in Heavy Metal mark- Parking Lot, we get to talk to the fans. It's the people who are about to go to the concert and how exciting it is. And more than that, uh, heavy metal parking lot, and this isn't uh, emblematic of the 80s in any kind of way, it's just uh, really captures that sense of excitement of going to a big music event. Like, you are you have the concert tickets, you're waiting in line, you're about to go in, you're about to see one of your favorite bands. This is gonna be great. Everybody's just high on the energy, and a lot of people are just getting completely bombed prior to the show. So all of that is is handled very, very well in Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Uh, this is a tie because I also wanted to mention another documentary film called, uh, by Penelope Spheris, which was The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. Uh, the Decline of Western... I could have put the first part on this list as well, but The, the Decline of Western Civilization was... Uh, it's one of the best documentaries you'll ever see about the punk movement, and it's really wonderful talking to some punkers about, hey, what is what does the punk ethos mean? And the answer is... I don't know. I just don't care. That's the punk ethos. Who gives a fuck? And uh, it's like, oh, okay. So so would you call it nihilism? I don't give a fuck, man. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> are you trying to destroy the government? Fuck everything, man. Like, that. that's essentially the, uh, the, the, the philosophy of punk, is fuck everything. Um, the Decline of Western Civilization Part 2 is, uh, is called The Metal Years. And it's almost like a, a, a dark mirror of... The punk movement, because it talks to a lot of hair metal musicians. It's not about the fans. It's about the people. So there's uh, performances from uh, Megadeth in this movie, uh, performances from Faster Pussycat. uh, But they also talk to, like, Paul Stanley and Steve Tyler and Ozzy Osbourne and, you know, Lemmy from Motorhead. Uh, It's... And a lot of these people... uh, Penelope Spheris was actually very clever, and he said how she let them say uh, how they got to be interviewed. What is going to be going on in the background? Where do you want to be seen? And I think it was Paul Stanley from Kiss 
who says, I want to be interviewed, but I want to be in a bed surrounded by all these hot babes. So lo, they staged it. He's just laying in bed and there's these naked women around him. He's just saying, yeah, and metal. And he's got the, it's like, yeah, metal's all this thing. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. Metal, metal's great because it gets you all these babes and it gets you money. And the more they talk to the metal people, <laughs> <laughs> like they have absolutely nothing of insight to say these musicians. Um, yeah. Uh, they they just say that metal is about success. It's about invading the. It's almost like the yuppie mentality. They're they got the big hair, they got the makeup. There's maybe some elements of queerness because they're embracing a lot of the the queer cross dressing elements from glam rock. But at the same time, there's this like really toxic uh, thread of homophobia running throughout a lot of this as well, uh, and like toxic masculinity. There's a lot of this Satanism and destruction because you got like, you know, Alice Cooper, but you also have, you know, Aerosmith. I, I think it was um, Greg Proops has a really uh, a really funny bit where uh, he went out to see, you know, like you go out to see like Alice Cooper and Alice Cooper's like, I'm going to pull out your bones and chew on them and I'm going to eat you. And then the, then Kiss comes out and they just say, we like girls. It's like, this is like these are the <laughs> clearly the well, two halves of metal. It shows you that metal was not a monolith. That they're like yeah. different ethoses and different people went into metal for different reasons. Mm. Yeah. And so I think Penelope's Furious is really kind of blows the lid off of metal and showing that it really is kind of directionless and formless. And even though there's a lot of interesting ideas in certain sects of metal, overall, it's really kind of self-damning in how shallow everything was. And the reason everybody wanted to go into metal was because it was so shallow. The reason people listened to metal was because it was all like sex fantasies, girls, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. It's uh, disappointing to me, actually, when you think about like how little a cultural footprint metal ended up having. Well, I, I think it did, though, because uh, in little ways. Um, pick, in little ways is my point. Like, not yeah. again, a, not a huge cultural yeah. footprint, but, like, it, I, it's kind of this one because it's because its hugeness was right there for, like, 10 years. Yeah, yeah. For about 10 years, it was in your face. It was everywhere. There weren't a lot of movies dedicated to it. And I, I was, like, waiting to see what your... When you said heavy metal parking lot, I was like, okay, there's a couple of different things that could be in this tie. Wow. One was the client of Western Civilization. Could have been Rock and Roll Nightmare. Could have been This Is Spinal Tap. Could have right, been Black right. Roses. <laughs> uh, could have been Trick or Treat, the 80s version, not the yeah. not the anthology film from the 2010s. Like, I was waiting to see where you were going to go. But yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, and, but, uh, but like, you look at a film like, I don't know, you look at a film like Mandy. And like, Mandy is a film that is like a metal film that sees depth in metal. Yeah, well, that that's what I like you about... Know? If you look at something like Mandy, uh, and... Mandy points out that, yeah, metal is actually an art and there's something there's like a philosophy to a lot of the death and fantastical and nihilism that you find in a lot of metal. Um, Metal is is very heavily tied in with fantasy. I think metal did leave a cultural impact if Pixar can make a film like Onward and tap into a lot of metal imagery because a lot of the fantasy images come from the side of like a Hesher's van. Uh, Mm Hmm. In, in that and one of the characters is clearly like a metal kid who wears a lot of black denim and has the you know, the vest with a lot of pins on I it. still feel like the majority um, of that comes from Dungeons and Dragons which ended up actually having an incredibly large cultural footprint 
Well, which I feel, is a little ironic, considering how it was considered yeah. kind of the dweeby thing to do for so long. You, you might find, though, that there's a lot of overlap between sure. uh, metal imagery and Dungeons & Dragons imagery. There's oh. a lot of metal and bands that, that are devoted to, you know, b- being the knight and taking the horse and, you know, all, well, all of that kind of stuff. I, I, I haven't, I gave up on it a while ago just because it wasn't for me. It's not bad, it just wasn't for me. Uh, but uh, I don't know if you saw that one clip of, um, I think it was Master of Puppets from uh, the latest season of Stranger Things. I haven't seen the clip. I know they used that song in... in there's the a, there's Things. like a bit in Stranger Things where they're going to this, like, horrifying hell dimension, and in order to rescue someone from being, like, devoured by demons, like, this metalhead has to perform, like, the perfect cover of Master of Puppets. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, like, on top of, like, a fucking on top of a fucking Winnebago and just like blasting it out against this like red sky. And then you see these like demon bats here, master of puppets. I'm like, Oh fuck it. We got to go over there. And they like <laughs> run after that guy. Like, and it plays like the entire fucking song. Like, wow. And that's those like are the, those, are those two things. And no, it's like, well, I think, I think they cut it off after a while, but like it's, it's a long time. Yeah. My point is this, those are, that's like the, I, I got to give him credit. That's the perfect marriage of those two things. Hmm. That's the perfect marriage of D and D and heavy metal fans, of which weren't necessarily overlapping a lot during the eighties. Yeah, but there was a definite connection there, wasn't it? Well, uh, and <clears throat> we we talk about uh, metal as if it was this kind of thing that was off to the side. No, that was actually like the middle of culture for a long time. These were best selling <clears throat> albums. These were huge. Yeah, and uh, it's it's kind of unfortunate that we think of metal as yeah as as like this monolith because the people who are listening to you know like underground death metal records probably aren't also buying poison records uh Hmm. you know there's a lot of this mainstream hair metal that was just anathema to a lot of what quote the real metal heads really liked um what really a movie came out a couple years ago uh it was a jukebox musical it was called rock of ages Oh, this! I hate this. Movie. <laughs> it's so bad. This movie drives. I I hate like one of the most unpleasant experiences I've ever had in a mm. theater. I was just like, "Can anything in this movie work, please? Mm. <laughs> like anything at all? I would like something the, in the movie to function as a film." And one one of the conceits of the movie is the main character at one point gets an offer to leave his metal band, and his metal band is like this shitty poison like metal band. They sing poison yeah. songs. Yeah. Uh, Look, Richie Sambora is a very talented guitarist, but Poison sucks. Uh, and uh, and the film argues that leaving his band and going to like star in like a boy band, which is just right, coming to the the four, the popular thing, like a New Kids on the Block, yeah. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, kind yeah, of like boy like band, yeah. being in the New Kids on the Block, some has like less creative integrity than being in a shitty band like Poison. It's like no. No, <laughs> it might not be as it might not be as capital C cool. Mm-hmm. It might be more mainstream, but no, no, it does not no, have no. more dignity. And this is this is and this is not like you know people who are listening to Black Sabbath. This is not people who are in heavy metal parking lot. This is like the shallowest, grossest version of like the wimpiest form of metal you can think of. They're singing yeah. shit like Sister Christian. It's like no, no. Yeah. You want rock? If you want actual rock, I like that song, but it's bubblegum rock. I like that song, but it's bubblegum hard rock. Yeah. I'm oh with no, you. I I I I can belt out Sister Christian at karaoke badly, just like everyone else. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but no, that 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 is that is like 
the worst, wimpiest, limpest part of heavy metal culture. And I feel like you have between... very you have very strong opinions about metal, and I love you for it. Well, I just I, I if I was close to being anything as a youth, I was close to being a metalhead. So, um, you know, I, I feel like heavy metal parking lot shows sort of a, a little bit more of the authenticity of what it was to be a metal fan, how hard it could be, how fun and dangerous it could feel, and then uh, something like Decline of Western Civilization Part Two shows mm. off that the people involved in making it weren't the smartest people. Uh, nice. Yeah, I, I I thought about putting like it's a lot. Music is a key factor in a lot of the movies on our list. I put Under the Cherry Moon on here. Uh, we both did the Break In movies, although we picked different examples. Um, Top Gun has an has an epic soundtrack. I, I want to make it clear though, because there's there are definitely cultures and subcultures that you and I don't know very well. Yeah, like I and are not and are not nearly as well versed in that. Absolutely had their own cinematic. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, impressions that were being made in the 80s and you know maybe we're not the best people to talk about those and I'll say it at the end of the episode but I want to say it now because it seems like a good time because we're focusing so much on metal um, if there are definitely so many different cultural and subculture and pop cultural alcoves that we're not exploring as well as yeah. we could on this list because we have a limited amount of space and we have you know our favorites uh, please email us. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Yeah. Or, you can, or we'll give our P.O. box later. Uh, and we want to hear more of like, it, it's not just like what f- cool films from the 80s you like, but is there some aspect of the 80s that we're missing? Yeah. yeah. Because there's a lot of them. And I'd be very curious to hear more. And we'd love to read those on our upcoming mm. episodes of We've Got Mail. Uh, my next pick is, it's not music, but it is, it is, it is, at the time it came out, it was considered a really cool movie. And in the years that followed, it gained a, a sort of appreciation, I think, and well-deserved for being maybe the most deeply political genre film of its time. Mm-hmm. Maybe the most deeply political film of any genre <laughs> in the 1980s in terms mm-hmm. of actually speaking clearly and incisively and critically about what was going on at that exact moment and actually getting it right. And I'm talking mm. about John Carpenter's They Live. I, I figured you'd be picking this one. Um, yeah, because this this is a film very, very much about Reagan's America. Yeah. The idea was, you know, <clears throat> Reagan's America mm. has... It's almost a tale of two cities, isn't it? There's mm. the there's the upper crust through Troop Beverly Hills's. Uh, where everything is rich and affluent and happy and people are successful. And then there are all the people who are not being filmed as often on television and in films, or if they are, they're scrappy underdogs like in the break-in movies, Mm. but even still they're kind of sanitized in a way. And there's a lot of poverty. There's misery. There, uh, There are mental institutions that are closing down and they're just putting people out in the street. There's a lot of actual systemic social oppression and uh, 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 real pain Mm. going on, and particularly in America, but all over. Uh, And They Live suggests very angrily (laughs) that the people who made that situation possible, the rich politicians, uh, the people who run the media, like TV stations and movies... Uh, the people who print magazines, the people who make commercials, the people who run banks, uh, 
they're actually aliens who have long since conquered the earth and we cannot see them for what they are because they have thrown subliminal messaging into everything that we have to accept the status quo. Mm -hmm. And the protagonist of the film, uh, a drifter named Nada, he's a man with no name, uh, played by the wonderful and late Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, who was really, weird, really good in this. Weird, weird choice. Like, I think you need... The, the role called for somebody more stoic. Rowdy Roddy Piper was, like, big wrestling personality guy. Yeah. I, I think he weirdly works, though. He's got this weird <clears throat> affability to him that doesn't feel like it's not hardened. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, life has been really hard, but he hasn't given up on life yet. Yeah. Um, and He's he kind, of, kind of a feckless finds, character. Yeah, basically, he finds that there is a group of people, underground people... Uh, uh, criticizing the world, and they're they're handing out people, they're handing out to people sunglasses, and these sunglasses, when you put them on, they filter out all the bullshit, and you can actually see what people are really telling you, and you could say this is something to the effect of reading social criticism or listening to people who are trying to actually, you know tune out the propaganda and tell you like no seriously top gun is is a propaganda machine Mm. he puts on the glasses and all of a sudden he sees the world in black and white much more clearly and he realizes that when he sees a billboard that's of a woman in a sexy bikini and she's selling him a drink she's not selling a drink she's selling the idea of heteronormativity Mm mm-hmm and so he sees that billboard and the billboard just says reproduce. That's what you're, that's the overall statement being yeah, made man. here is this is what we approve of. This is the message. He looks at money. Money has all of these odd symbols on them, but what money, what is money really saying? This is your this God. This is your God. Yeah. That, that's, that's, yeah. that's my favorite bit that, that capitalism yeah. is the new religion. This is your God. It is, it is religion, but it is also a system of oppression, and it is a system of oppression that is so permeated throughout every aspect of society that we don't even see it anymore. Mm. We don't look at it. We're so busy trying to find amusement, entertainment, any sort of way to get through our day that we gladly take what we are being spoon-fed from people who do not have our best interests at heart. Mm. And just try to go about our day and try to eke out a meager living when in actuality it's being taken from us by people in positions of power. This is an incredibly angry film. This is a very violent film. Uh, and it's a very smart film. And it's yeah, not, the yeah. concept is great, but like it's so expertly executed from beginning to end. Um, one of my favorite bits in it is there's this huge, incredibly long, like almost cartoonishly long fight. Oh, de- between Rowdy Roddy Piper and Keith David. Definitely cartoonishly long. Like, it goes it's it goes incredi- on a long time. <laughs> Keith, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper wants Keith David to put on the sunglasses and see what he sees. Keith David hmm. doesn't want to do that. He thinks Roddy... Uh, and this, uh, by this point, Roddy Piper is like a fugitive. He doesn't want anything to do with this guy. And he just wants Keith David to see the world through his eyes hmm. for a second. I, I think that the, he, the, the fight was part of part of Roddy Roddy Piper's contract mm-hmm. yeah he wanted to do a big a big fight mm-hmm. and he should and Keith David holds his own great he's also a big you know tough guy mm-hmm. but like I think the fact that the fight is incredibly long only solidifies the basic premise which is it's really hard 
to convince people to see the world in a different way. You look at all yeah. these like uh, Daily Show videos now where they go to like Trump rallies and they're just like and they ask people about just basic facts that are in the news yeah, and they don't do believe it or they've yeah, never yeah. heard it. Yeah, I mean, they don't believe it. They've never heard it. And then we present you with actual facts. Here's an actual quote. Here's a video of the person saying this thing you don't believe they ever said. And they still can't quite buy into it because that's their reality. Mm -hmm. They have been sold on a reality by the media that they consume and the, and the culture that surrounds them. And getting people to see past that is not simple. It could be, but it's not. It's incredibly difficult. And They Live understands that. Um on top of just being really exciting and it's got like a lot of humor in it and the special effects are really good. My, my um, one it's just one of the, yeah. yeah. My, my one complaint no, about... I, I love it. They, yeah. Sorry, fin finish your sentence. Uh, that was my point. I was basically, I, for all these reasons and more, I love it. Go all on. Right. Uh, just my, my one complaint about uh, They Live is I think the design of the aliens is pretty dumb. Uh, like, I understand that they're supposed to look sort of like a little bit like death heads. They have these kind of skull-like appearances. They have no lips. But the makeup is a little bit awkward, and they have, like, these uh, big, round kind of silly... They look like Halloween masks. It's a little bit silly-looking. But, you know... If, it's if, a little weird. They're, they're in a weird position, though, where they've got to have human faces, mm -hmm. but, like, it, but like you're filtering out, like, color, basically. Mm-hmm. So they've got they can only make them look so different, but they wanted to make them look as alien as possible. Mm. And so their overall aesthetic ends up looking just like really bright and busy. Mm. Um, and it's odd. I'll grant you that. I still think it works, but it is odd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It, it it functions fine. It just looks a little little strange to me. Um, Fair enough. I, John Carpenter is a wonderful filmmaker. Uh, he for many years I couldn't really place my finger on why his films. Uh, did it for me the way they did because I'm, I'm a big fan mm. of, of most of his films even the bad ones he's made I think are at least interesting to watch uh, it turns out he what he has is a complete lack of frills he doesn't mm. he's, he's not really showy he's just really good at the, the mere craft of filmmaking he knows where to put a camera he knows how to cut a scene it's like stuff he internalized um so something like They Live, however weird a fantasy it is, it feels very terse. It feels very matter-of-fact. It almost mm. feels like John Carpenter believes in this. Now, John Carpenter, in if you listen to him in interviews, you'll find that he's actually an incredibly laid-back guy who doesn't like take up arms for much of anything. He just wants to lay back, smoke weed, and play video games. That's uh, he, mm. he said in interviews, when somebody remakes one of his movies, he loves it because he opens his hand and a check falls in and he doesn't have to do any work. Like that's, that's his view of, of remakes of, of his movies. He doesn't care. Yeah. He, he, he rarely ever had any fucks to give. And he certainly ran out of any that he had a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of blase attitude of uh, John Carpenter really serves a film like they live because he is trying to tell just the story efficiently we are able to take for granted how true it is and how the people in charge, the rich, the elites really do feel like they're from another planet because they really are working against our and their own interests. And it almost seems like a logical conclusion that of course they're evil aliens. Mm -hmm. Why else would they be doing this? He makes no apologies. He never tries to jazz it up more than necessary in order to tell a scene. He presents it as, well, yeah, 
well, this is, and then this happened, and then they were aliens, and it's yeah. like, yeah, okay, and it's weirdly convincing because he's not trying too hard to convince you. Yeah, and yeah. it's another one of those movies where, again, you can watch this purely as an alien invasion film and appreciate it for being cool. But this is one of those ones where if someone points out that this movie is political and you didn't notice it, that is on you. Uh Because it could not possibly be more direct. It really could not. It is absolutely a a film that is about social issues, but it just happened to be the perfect mechanism for this cool alien invasion thing. And I love this movie to peace. I really, I recommend this movie to anybody. It's so damn good. Uh, And I think that's it. We only have Mm. our number ones left, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm very curious to see what you picked for your number one because it took me a while, but once I figured out what my number one, I was like, yeah, if I were to pick one movie uh, to say to tell people this was the 80s, uh, I've got my film. I'm curious yeah, what now, yours is. Now, again, this, this is with the caveat of our own personal viewpoints of what the 80s mm-hmm. looked and felt like to us. Um, and this one, I want to reach back a little bit to, your, to our discussion of uh, Back to the Future Part 2 and the way mm-hmm. uh, sort of the 50s were bridged to the 80s and then the 80s were again bridged into the future. Um, because I feel like not only was uh, the 1980s a time to really explore the 50s and mm-hmm. kind of look back at b- both as a way to venerate the 1950s, that sort of post- post-war suburban 1950s Americana, or to criticize it. Uh, the 1950s suburban milieu was a big part of 80s entertainment. Uh, that okay. there's there's a reason why there are 1950s greasers in something like A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, they were just everywhere. That's that's the way the writers were thinking at the time. Mm. I feel like criticizing that time, uh, looking back at the 1950s and seeing something very horribly negative, how a lot of evil was coming to the surface, uh, was a big part. I think I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah. I think you might. Um, this is something <laughs> that uh, Stephen King did in uh, the book version of It. Uh, I feel like the movies never really kind of delved into this, but a big part of it is looking back at the childhood of the 1950s, finding a lot of, you know, halcyon nostalgia, but also finding bullies and abuse and neglect and disappearing children and death and racism. All all of these horrible things are part of uh, it, the book. They're not as pronounced in the movies. But what if you look back at your own childhood? You have typical American parents. You're an only child. You're in this post-war world where food is plentiful, and you don't really know what you're being served anymore. What if your parents are serving you people? That is the <laughs> that is the the premise of one of the best films and one of the most '80s films of the 1980s, Bob Balaban's Parents. Uh, oh, that's a bold pick. <laughs> For a second, I thought you were going to go Blue Velvet, and I would have totally supported that mm. too. But parents for your number one, yeah. I got ooh, that's 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 why I love you, Whitney. I love you so much for that. That is a that is a smart play. Thank, I love thank it. you, thank you. Because it takes place in the late fifties. Uh, Randy Quaid and uh, and uh, Mary Beth Hurt play the parents. Uh, who plays the son? The I forgot who plays the boy. Um, oh, I don't. Know. I'll look it up while you're talking. Okay, uh, a young actor plays the boy. Yeah, and yeah. and the idea is, uh, if you think back, if you've ever looked at like a. a a cookbook from the 1950s. If you have a, a, a parent or a grandparent or even a great grandparent who has older cookbooks and you look back through the cookbooks of the 1950s, that was sick shit. That was terrible. There some disgusting yeah. things. Like, yeah. uh, uh, he, okay. Uh, the, the actor's name was Brian Madorsky. Okay. Uh, he was only a child actor for a few years and mm-hmm. then he didn't, uh, and then he didn't do much more after that. And parents is, uh, yeah. basically. Yeah. 
It's only film role, actually. All right. It's his only film role. He's really good in it. Weird. And uh, so th- this idea of... Um, he- here's what was going on. We had the, the Great Depression in the United States, and then World War II broke out, and the war effort helped reinvigorate... Uh, the New Deal and World War II helped reinvigorate the economy. And after the war was over, that's you know what we're talking about. It's the 1950s post-war economic boom. Uh, the birth of the suburbs, the birth of car culture. A lot of what we consider to be quintessentially American started at that time. And part of that was there was now food. And you look at some of the food products that started infiltrating grocery stores in the 1950s, and we don't know what it is. What the fuck is Tang? What the fuck is Spam? <laughs> it was all it was all now suddenly based on the sort of push-button culture. Everything was really, really convenient. And... The idea of a man being a breadwinner and a woman being a housewife started to emerge out of this. And where was all of this centered? But in the kitchen. What are your parents serving? You're here to feed people. There is now plenty of food. Well, what if that plenty got into your head a little bit? What if that plenty was, (laughs) I can eat anything now? And there's this weird sort of dark fulfillment of the 1950s in the fact that of course we're going to be cannibals now we've earned the right to be morally depraved and eat human <laughs> beings <laughs> and uh, i've i've always had a little bit of a, a touchy relationship with food i've talked about some of my f- food neuroses on the show before but uh, this idea that you don't trust what's being served to you is not something i've experienced but clearly it's something that a lot of kids have and mm-hmm. yeah like you see this like the 80s had this a lot too and something like um uh better off dead where mom's cooking something weird in the kitchen and it's got like tentacles growing yeah. out of it uh, if you ever watched the uh, kids anthology series, you can't do that on television. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of jokes about just not knowing what's in the food. Yeah, yeah. Like it's all being gross and made by like a garbage man. Like it's really, I guess that was a concern. Mm. And uh, for a long, a, a lot of parents, it seems like it's just this weird fantasy of the kid. He suspects that his parents might be serving him people. Like, why are you not telling me what this meat is? We're only ever having leftovers. I want to know what they were before they were leftovers. And the answer is, before that, they were leftovers to be. Uh, (laughs) uh, Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt are, like, they're playing cartoon characters. They're really kind of over the top, because this is all from the kid's perspective. Uh, Mm. And they are just playing it perfectly as these weird kind of over-the-top figures. Yeah. and then, of course, partway through the movie, we learn the truth of the matter. Has he been tricked, or has this all been a fantasy? And uh, and it doesn't disappoint. I'm not going to tell you exactly where it goes. Yeah. Uh, I also want to point out that Parents comes at a time in the 1980s when weird filmmakers could also start coming to the fore. Uh, the idea of, like, auteur cinema, uh, cinema like the, the notion was... Uh, first codified in Kai Herdu Cinema a long time ago, and you know, the idea that the director is the artist of the film, all of those film theory things were decades old. Uh, but I feel like something happened in the 1980s where a lot of what was mainstream was being subverted. A lot of really interesting, very strange, unique artists started to infiltrate, and you could get people like Tim Burton making hit movies. Like... How is it that something like Beetlejuice became notable (laughs) 
It's about it a, a couple. Hit. It was a huge hit. Yeah, it's about it's a couple weird. who dies and this really bizarre surrealist hedonism demon that tries to scare the yuppies out of their house like the fuck is this and i feel like uh parents is very much you know stuff like reuben and ed could come into the fore uh and yeah all of a sudden we have stuff like parents this 1950s deconstruction about cannibalism uh i I love that that on either of our lists is what we don't have a lot of on either of our lists in fact i'm looking over Huh. I don't think we have any come to except for this. Uh, we don't really have a lot of horror movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's well, a few I considered. There's a few I considered, but like, and I think, but I think, parents speaks to a really interesting anxiety that mm-hmm. was emerging in the 1980s, which, as youth culture was spiking and becoming much more prominent, and uh, a lot of more adult culture was skewing much more conservative than what kids were feeling, is this gap mm-hmm. between. What children are, are are feeling and what their parents are telling them, yeah, and a sort of a distrust forming, and very famously distrust of parents of their kids, worried that oh they're gonna no. get into Satanism and they're gonna do all these drugs and they're gonna go into violence and all that kind of stuff, but also kids learning to distrust their parents. And realizing mm. that their parents don't know everything. Yeah. Part of this comes from seeing the, fam- the traditional family unit being broken up as, as divorce became more prominent. And people started speaking more negatively about each other's parents. And you realize each other's parents' flaws. Mm. Perhaps more than they would like you to. Uh, but regardless, parents mm. is about a child realizing that... I am a, I'm a child. Mm. He's a little kid in this movie. He's not like a teenager. No, he's like eight. He's a little yeah. kid. <laughs> Like, I, I seriously consider putting society on this list as well, though. I think it might have actually come out of 90. Uh, yeah, because, okay. But that's one about a teenager uh, discovering horrible things mm. about their family. Well, same with... Uh, uh, but if, here's, here, here's a little kid. He, it, so anyways, 89. Here's mm. a little kid. He cannot live on his own. He doesn't have the freedom to escape. He is stuck mm. with these people as his caretakers, as his moral caretakers. And he's already realizing as a child, they're not moral. Mm-hmm. They're that, evil. That's a big part What's of... What's he supposed uh, to do? He's helpless. Yeah, that's, that's also a it's big terrifying. part of a, a Nightmare on Elm Street to bring it around to that one again. Um, in fact, if you look at Wes Craven, a lot of his films you'll find are about uh, teenagers being uh, attacked by the sins of their parents. That's definitely what mm-hmm. the first Nightmare on Elm Street is about. Freddy Krueger is killing mm-hmm. them, not because they did anything to Freddy Krueger, but because their parents did. Uh, it's it's yeah. an act of reven- revenge on Freddy Krueger's part. Uh, his his motivation for killing teenagers in all the sequels are just he's an evil demon guy, but in that first one it's it's a, a very definite motivation. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, listen, that's a great pick. I love you. I I honestly that didn't even occur to me, and I'm so <laughs> glad you picked it. Uh, my my number one pick is the one that I think ends up on a lot of lists of of movies that people would say are the most eighties movies of the eighties because mm. there's a lot of things in it that are like kind of embarrassing, yeah. and very stereotypical, but. It's one that I just I just couldn't like work my way around it, oh. you know. Like I couldn't like deny it after a while. I was like, no, that's kind of everything, isn't it? Like every everything the '80s were proud of, and everything we're kind of embarrassed of in retrospect. Uh-huh. Everything they represented, the music, the styles, the cultural attitudes, and also the exploitation, the desire to take older things and turn them into something. Uh, contemporary, perhaps to uh, an absolute detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about Rocky Four. 
Uh, that that's fair. Yeah, Rocky Four. Rocky Four is obviously it's the fourth Rocky movie. The first three, the first two Rocky movies. I, I feel like are Rocky Four and Top yeah. Gun are covering kind of similar ground, but okay. It's similar, but to Top Gun was at least trying to be taken seriously. Uh huh. Whereas Rocky Four is is a whole weird mutant, and the fact that it is a sequel to a franchise you can mostly take seriously before that is really noteworthy, and you can see the difference. If you jumped from Rocky 1 to Rocky 4, you would have no fucking idea how we got there. <laughs> and you can barely tell from Rocky 3. Oh. Well, Rocky 1 was, it's it's become a cliche because it's so perfectly constructed, but it's actually like a very 1970s, low-budget, character-driven drama about a down-on-its-luck boxer. Mm. The sequel, I think is a little underappreciated, is about what happens when you get your big shot, you get your big break, uh, and then what do you do next? What do you do with your life? You know, it's not, he didn't capitalize on it terribly mm. well. And it's all about him desperately trying to find some path now. And it's also a very character-driven story. The third one starts getting into a little bit broader territory. The villains are a bit more... Uh, exaggerated. You've yeah, got uh, uh, Hulk Hogan. You've got uh, Mr. T. But it's still a natural extension of the previous narrative. The idea is Rocky is now the, the, the champion of the world in boxing. But what if he's not any good anymore? Uh-huh. And what if this new challenger is simply better at it than him? Does he still have what it takes? Or is, is his career just kind of over and a lie? And then in Rocky Four, he fights a cyborg from Russia. <laughs> like, it's a really fucking different vibe, the oh. entire thing. Rocky is still the heavyweight champion of the world. He is incredibly popular. Everyone loves him. Uh, and Russia has decided they want their toughest boxer, played by Dolph Lundgren, who is a giant of a human, even in the real world. And but they find out that they've been using like Soviet science to make him even better, and so the idea is Apollo Creed decides he's going to fight this guy, uh-huh. and then Dolph Lundgren, being this like Russian super soldier, murders Apollo Creed in the ring, murders him in front of a live studio audience, kills him dead, and Rocky, who has just gotten over uh uh, uh the. He is just at this point given his brother uh, a robot for Christmas, and not like a cute little toy, like a full size robot like a that six, serves a six drinks. Six foot tall robot, yeah. He gives him. He doesn't give him a robot. He gives him a droid. There you go. Like he's like it's a totally like what the fuck is happening anymore? Now it's up to Rocky to go to Russia, mm-hmm. fight uh, Ivan Drago, and over the course of this fight. Rocky fights the guy, and in the middle of a crowd of only Russian people, and Russian politicians, and Russian generals, at the height of the Cold War, when the differences between the countries were seemed so important, and there were bombs were ready to be dropped at any moment, Rocky's tenacity convinces the Russians to cheer for America, all of them. That is some stupid bullshit. <laughs> that is the stupidest fucking fantasy. Mm. And we just talked about Red Dawn. Red Dawn is at least a natural extension of a fear. <laughs> Rocky Four is basically like, hey, 
I'm, 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 I'm trying to even think of like it'd be like if like okay so you know Mrs. Miniver was a was a propaganda film mm-hmm. in World War II but it was about like a housewife yeah, who yeah. was just trying to stay st- keep going during the blitz when things are really really hard imagine if in Mrs. Miniver 3 she killed Hitler <laughs> with like a sledgehammer <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying it wouldn't be awesome but it'd be weird she, right she, it would be like how did we get there from here she didn't kill it's not that she killed Hitler it's that she killed Robo Goebbels like they came up with some <laughs> Some alternate, even she killed the Red Skull from from Captain America. Yeah. Like that, that's like that, that's the for level years, of cartoonishness we're dealing with. For years, I had in my head canon this idea that Rocky Four didn't actually happen in the Rocky franchise. What mm. happened was sometime in the eighties, Rocky was still to have all Rocky one through three happened, but mm. at some point in the eighties. A movie studio went up to Rocky Balboa because a lot of like wrestlers and and sports stars and dancers and all kinds of famous people were starring in movies. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, <clears throat> like Barishnikov was in movies for God's sake. <clears throat> Excuse me, a little, a little diseased here. <clears throat> Sorry, but uh, so my idea was within the story of Rocky, a movie studio had gone to Rocky and said, "Hey, Rocky, we want to do a movie about you." And Rocky's like, hey, that's great. You know, I had a really interesting life. Like, no, 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 no. Not like your your origin story. We want to do a movie in which you, playing you, goes to Russia, beats up a cyborg, mm-hmm. and convinces Russia that America is better than Russia. And Rocky, who tr- very clearly established over those three films, <clears throat> has very poor taste. <laughs> yes. Just in art and life. Like, he's got that terrible, like, tiger coat and everything. Like, he's... He's a very sweet guy, but he doesn't have very He's elegant, the, uh, refined taste. The, the Leroy Rocky's going, Rocky's going. Eh, that's pretty cool, actually. We could do the, that. The Leroy and, Neiman it, paintings. Uh, yeah, like, so, but then and then and then, but my imagination yeah. it goes keeps going, and it's just like, but Rocky's like, hey, yo, but uh, you know, Apollo Creed just died. I gotta really just you know focus on this funeral stuff. And the producer's like, it's okay, we'll work it in. Mm. And like, they just managed to like make this incredibly tasteless, crass, terrible movie that Rocky is now completely embarrassed by. And I was a little disappointed initially when they announced in Creed 2 mm-hmm. that Drago was back and Rocky 4 was 100% canon. <laughs> but to Creed 2's credit, to Creed 2's credit, they made it work and that movie is really great. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bummed out that my headcanon no longer exists because it made perfect sense. Yeah. But that's, 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 it's fine. It worked out okay, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, Rocky 4 is, is just a weird, embarrassing, strange, mm-hmm. it's the Moonraker of Rocky movies. And I know a lot of people love it. I don't understand how you can love it unironically because it's so simplistic and childish in its perspectives <laughs> on Rocky yeah. and boxing and 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 well, it, political relations and the mm. Cold War. It's so nonsensical to me. It, it also has that wonderful uh, what we were talking about with Top Gun. That sense of like American exceptionalism. That being a scrappy out. That America is the scrappy outsider here. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a, a montage in Rocky Four where we get to see Drago training in like this really sterile, like darkened lab environment. And he's running on treadmills and punching these computer machines that are counting, like numbering down his, like actually recording the pressure of his punches. Meanwhile, we get to see Rocky, who's gone to Russia to train, and he's just carrying logs and lifting tires and you know, doing chin-ups in a barn. Like he's really doing it the wilderness style. He's he's Wolverine. Whereas, you know, Victor Drago is, is the android. And it was 
supposed to be that kind of uh, down-home, homespun American ingenuity that is going to beat uh-huh. the techno- technology machine of Russia. Yeah. And Rocky, who, by the way, recently bought his brother a robot. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not sure how well that even plays. The, the the movie doesn't play at all. It's it's absurd I, it's and fun. it's stupid. I have a fun time yeah. watching it, but it's incredibly silly. Yeah, <laughs> it's so eighties. I mean, it's, it's so unbelievable. It, it's 80s. it's not the worst Rocky film. That's Rocky Five, but uh, it's uh, it's definitely the most eighty. Yeah, it's it's certainly one of the most eighties films you'll ever see. Awesome. All right, so that is uh, that is the list, and uh, I'm gonna real fast. I'm gonna scroll through uh, at both Whitney and my uh, a list of the most '80s movies of the 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, and then afterwards we're gonna give a few runners up. I'm sure we both have them. Uh, Whitney's top ten list again. Only order that matters is the number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he chose Oliver Stone's Wall Street. He chose the original Breakin. He chose uh, Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Uh, John Hughes's The Breakfast Club, uh, Class of 1984, John Milius's Red Dawn, uh, the aerobics film Perfect, uh, <laughs> Top Gun, uh, a double feature of Heavy Metal Parking Lot and The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, and then finally Bob Balaban's horror movie Parents, which mwah, just <laughs> wonderful choice for number one. I love thank it. You, thank you. Um, my top ten. Uh, Prince is under the cherry moon, which again I stand by. I think it's underrated. Mm. Uh, number my uh, next up was Breaking Two, Electric Boogaloo. So we both are represented. And it's nice. Uh, next up we have the video game film The Wizard, uh, the uh, teen underdog film The Legend of Billie Jean, uh, the morally reprehensible but extremely indicative of its time Revenge of the Nerds, mm. uh, Troop Beverly Hills. Back to the Future Part 2, Tony Scott's Top Gun, John Carpenter's They Live, and Sylvester Stallone's Rocky IV. Whitney, did you want to rattle off some runners-up, other uh, films of note, Um, if people are interested in looking at 80s stuff? We kind of covered them here and there. Something like War Games I I had on my runners-up. They Live was definitely on my runners-up. I'm embarrassed that I actually didn't write down Rocky IV. I should have. Uh, Mm. But I I think we've we've sort of... And there were... The films on my runners-up sort of, like, covered similar ground. I was just trying to find, like, good, uh, exa- like, instead of something like uh, Top Gun uh, or Red Dawn, I could have chosen something like Commando. I feel like Commando is very much of, of a thing. Same with, um, not First Blood, but Rambo First Blood Part Two, uh, is, is also in that camp. But, you know, I, I chose what I chose because I felt like they were best representative. Awesome. Uh, a few, a few films that I, um... Either, we either didn't mention or we mentioned really briefly, I think, are, mm-hmm. are, are worth a note. First off, I'm really surprised you didn't pick Repo Man. Uh, I, Repo Man, uh, you know what? I actually crossed off Repo Man. And I love Repo mm-hmm. Man. Uh, Repo Man is a little too odd. Like, it's a little too much of an animal unto itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But you, So I, I chose class of... not really representative of the decade. It's too distinct. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's why I chose class of 1984 instead. That, that was kind of like the stand-in right. for Repo Man. Repo Man, by the way, love it. L- great, great mm-hmm. movie. Awesome. Okay, a few other films uh, that uh, didn't get mentioned. Uh, Night of the Comet, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great movie about a couple of valley girls who manage to survive 
uh, a apocalypse that comes via comet and turns all the survivors except for them into hideous killer mutants. <laughs> uh, and the first thing they do is go shopping, and the second thing they do is kill mutants. Awesome movie. <laughs> uh, Poltergeist, I don't think got to mention, but that's another film about the horrors of suburbia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent film, holds up really great. Uh, an incredibly weird mutant of a film, Terror Vision. Oh, I love Terror Vision so much. <laughs> Terror Vision is wonderful, but like Repo Man, might be too weird to to even yeah, yeah. might be too weird to even exist. Like it, it could only uh, have been let's... made in the eighties, but I'm not sure if yeah. like it, it's representative of even human behavior. <laughs> Uh, I, I almost did a parents slot, but I almost put in Blue Velvet, and then mm. I realized it's, like, kind of really, you know, it's a little on the nose, yeah. but, you know, there's always more than ten films you could pick that would be really, mm. really great. Uh, Ghostbusters I put in there. Uh, the Last Starfighter and The Monster Squad. Mm. Uh, I mentioned them when I talked about The Wizard, you know, sort of like the stuff kids are into are going to uh, save the day later. Um, Teen Witch I really wanted to put on the list that oh. I couldn't make room for. Okay. Um, Teen Wolf uh, gets all of the press and buzz. It's got like a spinoff uh, TV series and everything. Uh, but Teen Witch was designed to be sort of the girl fantasy teen version of Teen Wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a much more... <laughs> it's a, It's got so much more personality than Teen Wolf does. Teen Wolf is just such a boring film about a guy who hits puberty mm-hmm. and gets into like drinking and sports. And Teen Witch is such a more like bizarre and interesting and entertaining fantasy to me. And I hope more people see it because it's really good. Um, Flashdance is hardly a movie. It's basically a music video <laughs> yeah, that like yeah. got too big for its for its uh, for its cage and just sort of broke out. I'm like ah, I'm Flashdance. Mm. Um, I had Breakfast Club on my short list. Uh, Liquid Sky. I wanted to put on my list. Okay. Really, really bad. If you want to know what it was like to uh, uh, take drugs and uh, like sort of wrestle with your identity in the '80s. Liquid Sky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Li- Liquid Sky is, is it's one of the, like the, the seminal cult films of the 1980s for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. It's 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 if you've if you a lot of people haven't heard of it sadly nowadays, mm. but like if you're interested in stuff like Repo Man, like you got to see Liquid Sky as well. It's incredibly awesome. Uh let's see here what else did I have on my list? Uh The Howling is the most 80s uh werewolf movie ever. It's basically what if werewolves but also self-help seminars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's the self-help uh, seminar that I think a lot of people forget about the howling. Like the werewolf stuff is so cool, you forget yeah. that it's supposed to be a send-up of self-help, self-help seminars. Yeah, um, I'm really fond of this Peter Weller film called "Of Unknown Origin," where he plays uh, a yuppie whose family like goes away to visit their parent, like his his wife's parents, for the weekend or the week, and he's stuck at home. And gradually, one rat invades his perfect New York brownstone and drives him insane, like an Edgar Allan Poe story. <laughs> um, it's a little silly to, in parts, but it's so damn good, and Peter Weller really sells it. I love that to pieces. Um, maybe the ultimate uh, uh, slobs versus snobs movie. Like, you could argue it's not the best, but it's certainly the most. Like, it covers all the bases. Mm-hmm. Is Caddyshack two? <laughs> I put down society with, yeah. as well. I, I, I will forever. Uh, I guess that's about it. I will forever be tickled that you and I were far more positive on Caddyshack two than Alan Arkish, who directed the movie. We uh, like. I, I get it. Some people are people. Sometimes say that, like you know, like oh, what do critics know? And it's like sometimes we're a little kinder than even the filmmakers themselves. Yeah, you know, yeah. sometimes. There's, there's, just because you made something doesn't mean you have the only perspective on it. Yeah, uh, one, one. And I will say again, Caddyshack Two is it a classic? No. Is it fine? Yes. 
it's a reasonably funny underdog movie about <laughs> poor people ta- like taking it out on rich people yeah, and like yeah. the one actually decent rich person maybe in all of 1980s cinema like is oh. I don't understand why people are so harsh on that movie anyway that is it for the Iron List thank you everybody for listening if you want to uh, vote for the next episode of the Iron List you can head over to our Patreon it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we put out the poll as soon as we put out the new episode um and the poll for next time, for the next uh, the next month, uh, will be uh, have the following options: uh, the best disaster movies ever, okay. the best heist movies ever, the best prison movies ever, and the best zombie movies ever. And then finally, uh, in case you want us to continue on with our ongoing series, the best movies that just happen to begin with the letter F. <laughs> just because we got to keep that ball rolling we, we can't stop until we hit z and then we'll do numbers no we won't, no, we won't. <laughs> um we won't do that but listen thank you everybody for listening uh, as always we love to hear from you our listeners uh tell us like what did we miss what are again what are some perspectives that we might have missed on the 80s because it's a huge decade and you know i fully admit that whitney and i we, we try not to have tunnel vision but we have our own oh, we, uh, we, perspectives we and our own experiences have, yeah, and a, a perspective yeah. on this like and there's definitely a lot of different cinema. There's definitely we, we didn't pick uh, really any films from like other countries at the time because mm. we don't really know what was going on in other countries at the time because we were kids. Yeah, yeah. In the 80s and as much as we try to research it and stuff, we're not as well versed. So if you have there are particular movies that are distinctly from your country or from a different uh, uh, from a different culture or subculture mm. or anything at all, we want to hear about it. Please email us. Our letters, uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Or if you would prefer to write an actual letter like you would in the 80s, Whitney, what is our P.O. Yeah, box? send us an actual physical letter. Send it to P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep. And of course, we're on Twitter at criticallyacclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And uh, that's the list. Okay.